going to talk about red herrings and threads that you pull and subplots that you pull throughout your story and what to do with them, when to leave them alone, when to pick them up. And the secondary summary for this podcast was Heifer, stop, po- stop cock teasing your reader. Because it's true. I am someone who pulls a thread through a whole story. And I have been known to leave threads dangling on the end of a story so I can pick it up later. This is a trick you learn as a professional writer to give your reader something to look forward to in the future. It's not meant to be a torture device. But a lot of writers will stick something epic in the middle of their work that has absolutely no bearing on the story they want to tell because they think it's funny or exciting or cute and then never, ever, ever, ever address it again. Like, don't tell me your secondary character can fly and never tell me how or why or when he does it. If his ability to sprout wings does not have any bearing on the story, why are you telling me about his fucking wings? Right. Or, or, you know, there, I remember reading a story once where it was just kind of thrown out there that a character had the ability to create portals in time. And just thrown out there like that. But, and then there's a, and there was a whole discussion. It was in one scene. It was like this whole discussion about how, but he never uses this ability. Well, for us, how does he know he has this ability? I had so many questions. How does he know he has this ability if he never uses it? He, it, it talks about all the moral implications of time travel, right? And it, this is being said, you know, and it's being, it, it's thrown out there as this lure, right? Like, and it's being said to somebody who has this major I- event in their life that would they would undo if they could, right? So you're thinking, you know, through the whole story that even though it was a hard shutdown, like, why tell the guy you can time travel for starters? Like, why tell anybody? If it has to be a secret, why tell anyone? You don't use the ability, why tell anyone? You know, so it's a whole, like, there's so many questions about the way this was revealed and even why it was revealed. Um, so the, by the end of the story, you, you keep thinking this time travel is going to come up. He's going to change his mind. You're thinking this is the climax of the story, right? You're thinking that he's going to change his mind and they're going to travel back through time. It's going to be, this, this is my, my brain is like problem solving it, thinking, that that's going to be like a setup for book two is at the end, they're going to travel back in time and they're going to fix this big thing in this other guy's life. No, no, that wasn't it. And there was no book two. The author meant it. The author meant every word of that, that, that plunk right down in the the middle of their story. He can create time travel portals, portals through time. He never uses it. Don't ask. Not sure why he brought it up. Um, And it's just, it's just there. It just, it was there like this, why is this happening? <laughs> and I got to the end of the story and I was like, um... <laughs> He's oversharing oh. like a motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you telling us this terrible thing you can do if you're not going to do it? But, you know, sometimes, and someone brought it up in the chat, and I'll address it. It's fine. I'm not even mad because it's ridiculous. Okay. There's a scene in Lantean Legacy where Vala asks John if there's anything she can do for him. Or get for him. Because he's asked her about her sp- her space piracy. 
And he says, as a matter of fact, there is. And he never elaborates. It wasn't meant to be a tease or a red herring. It was, it was a throwaway line that I did not consider the ramifications of. And sometimes that happens. Sometimes you'll, um, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I did not mean to drive anybody nuts. It was not meant to be a thing. No, 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 it's fine. I promise you it's fine because it's a perfect example of this thing because sometimes you do it. Sometimes you put a a throwaway line in a conversation that's just meant to be a little half flirty exchange between a space pirate and this dude, you know, that she's just met. That's not meant to be taken. You want it to be seen one way, but your readers take it another um, and I do have a habit, you're right, of weaving little things into scenes that come back to bite you later. Um, or tickle, depending. Um, and so we did spend a whole podcast or an after show one night trying to figure out what she could steal for him. So he will eventually, she will eventually steal something for him. So, you know, it'll happen. It'll happen. Um, but it wasn't intended to be a a thread or and i i don't do red herrings i find them awful it's an awful device to use in your fiction it's very misleading it's it's i just can't stand i just can't stand to see it i just cannot stand to see it um so i would never write it but sometimes you make a mistake like that and it's because you see yourself doing one thing in a scene and your readers pick up another and context in that kind of situation is everything. And in retrospect, it's very clear that I didn't make the right decisions dialogue-wise in that scene um, to give the impression that I wanted to give. And that happens. And it's a recoverable mistake because I can go back later and have her still something really epic for him. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's... But I, I would... I. I vaguely remember that scene. Um, it it didn't. I mean, I'm not somebody who obsesses on like micro details like that. But it didn't. I didn't get to the end feeling like that was the big moment of the story and why why wasn't it the thing that was explored? And that's the thing that I think that is there's there's small and big things you can do. One um, we talked about a little bit, kind of tangential to this when we talked about the subplots podcast about mm -hmm. you don't want your subplot overshadowing your main plot and you have to be careful that you don't write a subplot that's more interesting because usually your, your subplot climax should be before your main plot climax um, typically. And so you don't want people having that, the big moment going, Oh my God. And then you still are actually writing on your main plot line. So you have to be really careful to balance that, that your subplot isn't more interesting. And if your subplot is more interesting, you probably should pull it out as a separate story and not be trying to weave this into that. this because it, it can pull away. Like if you're trying to tell something soft and romantic, and you have this really fascinating um, subplot about space piracy, I'm just using that as an example, not because I think that that's you know you know you have this fascinating subplot about space piracy. People are going, but what about the space pirates? Yeah, they got together and had sex. What about the space pirates? You know, and that's. <laughs> You don't want that people like sitting there clapping away for space pirates and they never get space pirates um, while you're thinking your story is about um, the soft romantic um, moment. And the thing is, if you separate them into two stories, you can have two really great moments that are two different moods rather than, 
you know, like a side story or something um, to the main body of work or something. You just have to be careful about how you balance that. I don't want to say this is all, you know, when we talk about this kind of stuff, this is all opinion. Because when it comes to what kinds of threads you can leave hanging and what kinds of threads you should close up, that's a really, a lot of times, a subjective call. But when the reader gets to the end of the story and all they can think about is this thread you pulled in the first quarter of the story that you never went anywhere with, something went awry. Something went awry. Um, there's a book um, by Dean Koontz. I don't know how many of you have read it. Um, it was an interesting one. Of, it was a little interesting for him. Um, at the time period, one of the first I had read like this it was called Mr. Murder. And it has a, like a, a not a half, but a good portion of the book is told in the POV of the killer who is stalking um, the guy who is, I believe, trying to catch him. I'm, I'm a little hazy on the plot. But it is interesting and noteworthy that you're in the POV, deep in the POV of the killer in some chapters. And can you imagine if you've got like, let's say you've got a quarter of the way through the book and you've read a couple of um, chapters from the hero um, and you've read a couple of uh, chapters from the, the, the killer who is stalking, I believe he's stalking the, the protagonist in the story. He's looking for him. And then some random sheriff's deputy catches the killer. We never find out what happens to him. We never go into his POV again. And the rest of the story is about the um, the, the, the the protagonist, you know, buying a lake house and living out his retirement writing books. Wouldn't you feel a little bait and switch to never know what happened to that killer that you got two paragraphs of him plotting and, and stalking this? Wouldn't you want to know? I mean, the author knows. I, can, I can't even describe my face right now. I mean, right? I mean, but see, the thing is, but there, I have read stories that basically set up that way, where they throw this really like massive. And the pro part of the issue is POV. You have to be careful about going to the POV of characters you're not going to follow through with, because that then becomes a dangling thread. When you go deep into the POV of characters you're not going to follow through up, you're you're audience is sitting there going wait what but, but but what about but what about but what about um imagine that um uh let's see that that bobby uh that bobby uh the let's say it's a 911 story and let's say that that buck um is gonna move to austin he's gonna work for, for austin and let's say that uh I'm, gonna, I'm just going to pick a character I'm not terribly familiar with. So let's. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just pick Lucy because I, I don't know her very well. So if you love Lucy, don't get butt hurt. I'm just picking her because I'm not really familiar with her all that much. Let's say Lucy's furious that Buck left. Okay. And she starts plotting to uh, go to Austin and force Buck to come back. And if Buck won't come back, she's going to kill him. And she's, we're deep in Lucy's point of view. So we go Bucks. We got we got Buck setting up his new life, and then we got Lucy plotting to go kill Buck. And you got Buck. You see, we're alternating. Buck starting out setting up his new life in Austin. He's happy. Lucy's going. Yeah, Lucy going full crazy. She's going to go kill. She's, she's plotting to kill Buck. Maybe she's thinking about hiring somebody. Um, and then all of a sudden, the author gives you a note that says, "Okay, I think I'm done with you know the plot with dealing with the characters in L.A. I'm just going to focus on Austin from now on." And you're going, well, but is Lucy still going to kill Buck or not? 
<laughs> and Lucy's like, over here trying to get in a Lifetime movie, and Buck's going to Country Western Bars. We <laughs> we got a problem, NASA. NASA, we got a problem. Right. So you're sitting here kind of going, okay, so this, I've got, I've got another 90,000 words of story, and you're telling me that this, the author's just telling me that this storyline is over with. Right. Did she just get bored? Is that what happened? Is it boredom? It, and, and so all I can think about going forward in the reading of this story is Lucy, not Buck, and, you know, whatever epic romance he gets involved with. Um, I'm voting hot not, cowboy. You guys with me? <laughs> yeah, definitely hot cowboy. Um, definitely, somebody needs it. Definitely, somebody's gonna have to have sex with their boots on. Um, but, but all you're thinking about is is the crazy person who plans to kill him, or plans to kidnap him. Maybe the plan is to kidnap him and bring him back to L.A. and make him go back to work, <laughs> because you know that's the way nutter butters think. Um, what do you do? What what do you as you as the reader are sitting there going, but 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 what now? But I don't. But what do I do next? So, and I have read. What I would do is quit of, reading the story. Right? But yeah. So, and the thing is, is I mean, I certainly I would not say anything to any author with with a with a. I didn't say anything to the time travel author. You know, here it is, time travel that goes nowhere. Um, but I did, you know, I, I did actually, what the funny thing is I, I did go through and look at some future author notes. I didn't, which I usually don't even read that much, but I did go through and look at author notes and they were really like diehard determined that they were done with the plot line. Um, this, this was an analogy. There is no Lucy stalking book. I'm just doing a, I'm doing kind of a parallel of something that I, I have read. Um, very, very loose parallel. And, um, you know, the author's like, no, I'm done with this plotline, I'm done with this plotline, I'm done with it. And it's really adamant in their author notes that they're done with it. And then in their end notes, they say that, you know, look, I'm leaving myself room for a sequel. So could you quit hassling me? I'm like, um... Well, I'm oh. not reading your dumb sequel. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> So okay, so I mean, I mean, maybe yes, maybe they are going to write a sequel. I kind of doubt it, but um, and like I said, this is all very. The author reaction is legit. The fandom is different. You know, everything is very loose parallel because I try not to to you know press on people's actual writing. But um, the in this instance, all you can think about is. is this really intense external conflict that is coming this character's way that never gets dealt with. That is not leaving yourself room for a sequel. That is a huge um, thread, a huge thing you've left open. And it's not just, I, I don't even know that I would call that a thread. It's a, especially since you had been deeply for several chapters in the mind of the person plotting this I mean, kidnapping or murder or whatever. If you give a villain a a POV and give them a plan to impact your main, your main character's um, path and life. You're not create, you're creating a major subplot, not a thread. This is a major subplot that the author just decided they were done with. Yeah. I probably that now was you're that I didn't want to write this Lucy's anymore. probably in LA stalking some other dude. Cause she got distracted from Buck. 
Right? She's got she's got severe attention and def- deficit issues when it comes to her <laughs> stalking. <laughs> now, who's this poor dude? No, in this story, Eddie definitely runs his daddy's ranch in Austin, Texas, and he's going to meet a hot firefighter. <laughs> right? <laughs> or, you know, Eddie can be at the 118 because, you know, we could go with that trope of that Eddie and Carlos are cousins, you know. I'm, mm. not, I'm not mad. I'm not mad hey, at that uh, Hey, uh, I seen your boy. Where? <laughs> Obviously in Austin, that's where I am, Eddie. <laughs> where? <laughs> exactly in Austin. So it it's a it's a question of it's it's important I think when you're looking at your own writing to decide what really are the little the little nuggets you can sprinkle in to give yourself yourself interest in writing more for the story of the future but also to give the reader interest without the reader feeling like they didn't get a complete story and that's part of the issue is the story that you tell needs to feel complete complete does not mean every single thread gets tied up you know there there are people who go well what about this and what about this and what about this i said and what about them cleaning up after they have sex you know i didn't write that either figure it out you know you are you are growing up with the ability to extrapolate they went back home what do you think they did and if you're not a grown-up, you got no business on my site reading my shit. I actually responded to, to somebody with that once. They wanted to know. They wanted to know what happened after a certain, you know, where the story ended. I said, "They went back home. What do you think they did?" <laughs> I mean, it was so like I I went hyper literal with the question, and what they meant was, um, what happens next in their lives. <laughs> that wasn't what they yep. asked. Don't ask Jilly questions because you will get a very literal answer. They went home. <laughs> They went home, they went to sleep. They had sex in the morning. Come on. <laughs> um, but there's, I think there's, a, you know, Kira's right. It is It is when you throw out something that big, like Lucy planning to kidnap Buck back to um Now I'm worried LA. about all of L.A. <laughs> <laughs> um, she's planning to kidnap Buck or whatever. When you leave that out there, that it, when, once you go into her POV and you start down that path, you have established a subplot and subplots typically need to be wrapped up um, within the body of the story. Now I kind of put a, a caveat on that because sometimes there's a running subplot that will run throughout an entire series of works, like a serial uh, that's, but it's usually a, a minor subplot or it's like a um, um or a goal yeah like i mean you, you, you see some voldemort yeah voldemort is a goal in harry potter yeah but you see a little bit of a running subplot a little bit with some of snape um stuff in in harry potter harry potter's a good one because it's, a lot of people know it mm-hmm. and it has um a few threads that get pulled you know where you do see some resolution on what you know of that subplot in each book or in each book where it's relevant, but then the next book reveals more of it and you move on. So like like the Lily James, the Marauders and Snape thing, that, that thread got kind of pulled very slowly, but there was still some resolution around what was pulled of that subplot in each book where it comes up. It doesn't, I don't think it comes up in every book. Um now it's not a great subplot. You know, I'm not saying I'm not. This is not. This is not critique of the subplot itself. But it is something that kind of is a thread that runs through the whole through the whole serial. 
And that's why I kind of put a little bit of caveat on usually you want your subplots wrapped up within the, the same book. But you'll, like I said, in within each book, the piece of that subplot that she's exploring is kind of handled. Even if there's there's pieces left open, open with some questions, well, what about, well, what about, that get picked up later. And that's kind of the way you do a long-running subplot, kind of like that. It's not... Well, there's always going to be questions. Yeah. But it's not, it's not even, I would say it's a long-running subplot isn't even actually even all that typical, but it does, um, it does come up. Uh, It does happen. It's just... If you have never worked a lot with subplots and you've never worked with a multiple multi-book series, I would not assume that you're the author who can handle that. I, I just I don't mean that critically of you. I mean that I would work on managing your subplots within the standalone novel before you work on managing a subplot that runs through seven novels. The thing about a really narrow subplot like the one with Snape is that all it does is enrich what's happening if it was removed the reader wouldn't miss it if it would never been there the reader would have never missed it it was never so much that it was an immense distraction in the reading for me um it was a very subtle thread that was pulled throughout the series uh sometimes you can pull a big thread through a series like well in gratua i'm pulling mandalore along with me the whole time um, the goal of, of getting their homeworld back. And it's laced through Din's journey in A Better Man and in The Thousand Mile Road because all of this is going to lead them back to Mandalore. But I like to think that when I finished A Thousand Mile Road, no one was, like, super disappointed um, with, with my ending. No. I, I mean, I love uh. both books. I would have been happy with the first book if you hadn't written the <laughs> second. So, um <laughs> But Mandalore but, is in the distance, right? You see it. You see that looming yeah. goal. And it's not and we, like a boulder sitting in the plot. No. We've talked before about... Um, now, that's a big, like, overarching goal. That, that mm-hmm. When you have a series and you plan a series and you've got a big goal, um, it has to thread through everything you write. Uh, every story in the serial has to thread that big goal in. Because we talked about in other podcasts about how if you're writing a series that... Um, uh, the G- you have to have a GMC for the series, which is goals, motivation, and conflict, and you have to have a GMC for the um, individual stories as well. And so you and those things have to work together; they have to cooperate. But the subtle, the subtle stuff, these su- subtle uh, subplots, often what they are doing is providing either external conflict, um, which I think is usually more typical, um, and certainly external conflict leads to internal conflict. Uh, and sometimes those, but sometimes they're also speaking to motivation as well. But I, I do think subplots usually often are being used to help with conflict or character development. But the thing about that is you could, that when you, when there's a subtle subplot like Kira mentioned, where you could take it out and not miss it, something else would need to be in, in that place to provide that Mm -hmm. conflict that he, that he brought to the table. So, um, but it was actually pretty well done in terms of uh, you not, I mean, you weren't getting to the end of the book going, why does he hate, why does he hate Harry? Why does he hate Harry? Because even though that question wasn't answered in the first book, it was, it was such a small thing 
the, that element, he just kind of, most people probably wrote it off as him being a bullying teacher or just having a sour disposition or whatever. It Which, was, you know, it, honestly, was right? exactly the case. Right. It did not overshadow in any way Harry's conflict with Voldemort, right? No. But in the scenario I painted about Lucy planning to come and kidnap Buck or kill Buck or whatever if he won't come back to L.A., let's say he gets in a relationship with Eddie, who's 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 a cowboy in 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 Austin. Um, that that looming threat overshadows that relationship, and there's no way for it not to, because it is especially because especially because and this is the a big component. Lucy has a POV. We got to see Lucy's plotting, and we got to see her anger and her. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make him come back. You know, we got to see that. Because, and then so once it's just dropped, you're going, but what? And so then all of a sudden, Buck's romance is just completely overshadowed by this looming threat. If a bunch of the first Harry Potter book had been written in Snape's POV, the significance of that unanswered question would be completely different. For starters, it wouldn't be an unanswered question because it would be disingenuous to not answer that question when you've got a POV character who's pissed off about something. Um, I mean, like, having read the whole series now, it is clear why Snape hated Harry. It was unreasonable. Yeah. It was immature. It was irrational. It was honestly disgusting. But it's clear why he did it, why, why he hated that child. Um, to the very day he died. But it doesn't, like, but when you just read the first book by itself, the lack of nuance and explanation and the literal one-dimensional portrayal of Snape in the book, um, he's disgusting. In fact, he reminded me on the page before I ever saw even an, an image of the movie, and I've never watched the movies, I've watched 10 minutes of the first movie, to clarify, um, I got pissed off for the sorting and shut it off. Anyways, <laughs> we're not going to go down that road again, but I'm still pissed. Anyways, Snape reminded me of Wormtail. In, not Wormtongue. Wormtongue in Lord of the Rings. I found him obscene in the book. And I was like, why is this disgusting motherfucker teaching children? Yeah. Now, Wormtongue is a character in Lord of the Rings. You see him in part two of the the, the, the second movie, The Two Towers. Um, he's a dark, magical user, not a wizard. He's using some kind of magic to corrupt a king. Theo Theoden? Yeah, you can, lady. Yeah. Theoden. Theoden? Theoden? Uh -huh. You can give us a picture. Yeah, absolutely. I think pictures... Your mod, you should you should be able to put you should be able to put a picture up. Um, he that's who I pictured when I read that first book. I I didn't go quite that bad because I Wormtongue bothered me almost more than any of the evil characters in um, in in Lord of the Rings um, for a, for a lot of reasons. He just really pushed my buttons. So I didn't quite go that there with him. I, Snape just seemed like a bully to me. In the first book, um, there is a interesting parallel between Wormtongue and Snape, with the obsession, um, with the corruption. Um, he works for Sauron. Snape works for Voldemort. I mean, the parallels are really easy to find in Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings, to be honest. 
There are a lot of them. Super, super easy to find, yeah. I actually, the funny thing is, I think that I I see more of what I, what I found troubling about Wormtongue. I see more of it actually in what, where I, the way I came to see, see Voldemort, not Voldemort, Dumbledore. Um, but I see the parallels that you're talking about between Wormtongue and, um, mm -hmm. and Snape. But some of those traits, that sort of like the whispering, the, you know, the manipulation, manipulation. and stuff, I saw. I saw that more in Dumbledore, so I feel like that um, Wormtongue, yeah, like if you, t if, yeah, if you took if you took uh, Snape and merged him with Dumbledore, you would have Wormtongue, like almost perfectly, except without the power. Yeah, someone said in the chat that uh, Sauron channeled power through Wormtongue to corrupt the the, the king, um, which makes sense because he did have he he couldn't have had magic of his own because only they they don't seem. There don't seem to be magic users outside of the, the, the Maya, the Mayor wizards on Lord of the Rings. Theoden. Okay. I mean, I can say it in the moment, but in five minutes from now, I'm gonna forget it again because it's just like fibro. It's just it just goes in one ear and out the other. Yeah, yeah. He uh, he was a willing conduit. There. Yeah. I mean, he's just it's it's awful what he's doing to that king. I mean, it's just disgusting. The difference between being under his thrall and not being his thrall is stupendous. I don't know how anybody just didn't pop a cap in his ass. Not literally, they didn't have guns, but <laughs> they could have done something. They could have stuck a sword in his back. He wouldn't have noticed until it was too late. <laughs> Demma, you gonna get in the corner. We haven't put anybody in the corner in a long time. You see what she put? I, yeah, I see it. She totally deserves it. Yeah, Istari. Astari, Istari. Gandalf is one, for those of you who are not getting my references. Um, Radagast the Brown was the other that we saw. And um, we saw him in The Hobbit. Yeah. I don't think we really saw very many of the uh, the Maiar in um, Lord of the Rings outside of Saruman and um, Gandalf. That was it, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so these little threads that you pull to enrich your plot and your characterization, I think they're more beneficial in characterization, are to the good. But when you throw a boulder in the middle of your plot that is so super distracting that your main plot no longer has any interest to your reader, you've made a mistake. And if you're right, if you're publishing as you go, as you write, you're, write you're, you're publishing a work in progress, this is going to be a hard mistake to, to back out of. So you either yeah, have to follow difficult. it through or edit your shit and tell your readers to start over reading again. Demo went and got which, snacks to get in the corner. <laughs> which honestly, if I, if I did, if I, if I were writing as I go, um, and I had done that, I would, um, I probably would rewrite and tell people, sorry, you're going to have to reread. Because if you've made that kind of, like, you're just going, look, I fucked up. And I'm going to lose complete interest in the story if I don't rewrite this. I think that's the better choice than to just just pretend like you it didn't happen. Which is basically what you're doing when you just say, hey, I'm not going to deal with this anymore. You're pretending like it didn't happen. And it always is, basically, anytime you give your... Um, an, a, an antagonistic character, a POV, you have to be really careful because you're basically potentially introducing a subplot. And there's if, if the character isn't a significant character in the story, there is no reason to give 
an antagonistic character a POV. It's not my habit to give a bad guy a POV. Um, you see it a lot in suspense. I think it's the most interesting in suspense to do it. Because um, the difference between a mystery and a suspense, for those of you who don't know, a mystery is supposed to be where the author manages to keep the killer or the crime give taker, whatever the criminal is in the story. Usually in a mystery, it's a murder mystery. In a murder mystery, the the killer should be a surprise to you. In a suspense, you are often introduced to the killer pretty much immediately. And you know so who they are. So if you're reading something like J.D. Robb and you keep getting pissed off because you guess who the killer is, you're reading in the wrong genre because you're supposed to guess. <laughs> That's what suspense is. <laughs> it's not a bleeding mystery. But like with Sherlock Holmes or um, um, those cozy mysteries, you're not supposed to guess who the killer is until the reader tells you. So you won't yeah. see the killer POV often in a cozy mystery or a regular mystery novel. But in a suspense, they'll dig in deep and, and let you see all the ugly parts. Which can be the most yeah. difficult part of reading a suspense for me. It can be very disconcerting, especially if um, um, it's well done. If the author really digs deep and gets that... It, you're Where you're uncomfortable, it, if you're uncomfortable reading it, it tells you the author did a good job. Which... Sometimes is why I don't read suspense. But I used to. I used to read th thrillers and suspense all the time. I used to, like, you know, live on Dean Koontz and Stephen King. So, although a lot of Stephen King is more horror. Um, same thing with mm. Koontz. So, but that was, mm. like, my bread and butter in my 20s was Koontz and Stephen King and stuff. So, um, outside of romance. That was what I really what I read. I'm reading horror and romance. I don't even, can't even I was reading myself. suspense, romance, and YA. Um I worked in libraries a lot, and uh, it was just, you know, I picked up a lot of stuff. Um, my favorite romance writer at, at that time would have been Julie Garwood. I loved her. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Um, historical and suspense. What? <laughs> yeah, she was good. She, she, she painted a picture really, really well. Um, yeah. But, you know, for all we talk about... Um, Nora Roberts and head hopping. Nora Roberts, when her, her head hopping is usually confined to the characters of relevance in the story. She mm -hmm. doesn't head hop into just anybody's POV. Um, no. So I, I think that's, and that's an important distinction. I mean, I'm not saying be like Nora because it's better to learn how to manage your POV. Uh, and Nora Roberts is Nora Roberts. So, but when you are, if you if you are somebody who's a head hopper and you like to just kind of jump around and you think you're writing an omniscient POV, even in omniscient POV, you don't jump into everybody's head head. That still is head hopping. Um, I rarely I ever encounter someone who thinks they're writing an omniscient point of view, who is actually writing an omniscient point of view. It's a, it's a rare point of view um, that I see actually done. As especially among fan fiction writers, I did read. I read a story uh, a while back that the author actually f flat out said, like in their tags, that it was omniscient POV. Um, and what they basically meant is they didn't have any clue what they were doing. I mean, every what they meant was everybody, <laughs> everybody had a fucking POV, including and a, dog. a dog. <laughs> no, literally, and a dog, probably all the dogs, and an entire forest. I'd be like, you know what, dude? Just tell me the dog story. I don't want to just. There was a Tell moment when the, the dog's point of view. There was a moment when the trees sighed with relief. Like they didn't. I mean, the, they weren't magical trees. They just sighed with relief, and I was like, 
the story ended, I'm like, can we get back to the trees, please? <laughs> Why the were they doing? relieved? Are the trees sentient? Are they sapient? What is it about these trees that they were so relieved? I mean, what were we trying to say? With, I mean, And I think that they thought that this was a, a device of omniscient POV that they could do this, just kind of throw out there that, you know that when this person bought this house or this cabin or whatever that um that even even the land was relieved i think it was intended to be hyper- hyperbole but the way it was written it was like the actual trees were having a moment <laughs> and i just remember it like years later i was like what's with those trees like is it a magical forest it was like never any follow up um, here's the problem with giving an uh, an object like a tree a point of view more specifically when a tree can be relieved can a tree get pissed (laughs) these are the questions you gotta ask yourself okay the trees are happy to see them what happens when the trees aren't happy to see them (laughs) right what about the angry tree that's where i I have to say i have to say there is a 911 story that is weirdly i have to say weirdly cute the weird word there is not criticism but when i tell you what is what is weird about it you'd have to admit it is weird the entire story is told from the point of view of one of buck's shirt buttons (laughs) i love that fic (laughs) i love it so sometimes you do go all in on something like that but to have a serious story where um, it's like a romance and it, 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 all your POVs are normal and like all of a sudden there's a shirt button POV. That does not work, okay? This story worked because it was entirely from the POV of the shirt button who really kind of resented how tight Buck wore his shirts. <laughs> um, there was this sentient jumper fic once uh, for, in Stargate um, where the jumpers totally shipped it. They were on board the mixed ship train, the the McShep train on it. They were on it. And there was this one scene, and I'll never get it out of my brain, where Rodney had come to see John in the jumper bay. Um, and John watches him walk away, you know, check out his ass. And the jumper starts playing Jethro Tull. <laughs> and John tells him to shut up. Tells the jumper to shut up. And I have never. I I wish I remembered more, but that's all I remember. That is it. That is all I remember. Someone has found it. <laughs> Wait, what did they find? Which one? Oh, oh, oh! That's the bu- that's the button the one. Button. Okay, the the button, the button one, one is amazing. The button is it, so good. It's called the friction in your jeans has nothing on the strain of my damn shirt, but is definitely the cause of it. And the author is Mansika, M-A-N-S-I-K-K-A. I'm not confident about my pronunciation of their author name. That that, that button thing is hilarious. The button is called Benton. Yeah. Yes, it has a button as a name. Um, there's also a, a episode. There's also a, a fiction in Stargate where a lab table has a point of view. I don't remember if it wanted to lodge a complaint or if it was bragging because John and Rodney kept having sex on it. <laughs> I don't remember what was what the pro I don't remember if it was bragging or complaining <laughs> to the other tables because John and Rodney kept having sex on it. <laughs> Natalie's saying complaining. 
But sometimes those fix have a special place in fandom. And also in those fix, nearly 99% of the time, that's the only POV you get. Yeah. And the reason why they have a special place is because they're done really well. And so yeah. this is a case of where the author, you know, but sometimes people want to take a little bit of what this person did and a little bit of what somebody else did, and they want to put it all together in a blender and see what comes out. And sometimes it's certain, you can't just mix different kinds of plot devices like that. It's just, your story doesn't have any any identity of its own when, when that happens. So if you want to write a shirt about, you know, Buck's straining buttons or anybody straining buttons you know acknowledge who you know where you got the inspiration from but go on and write your straining button fic but don't write your sweet romance and then have a button pov in the middle of it it's just but that's more of a that's more of a pov thing but when it comes to threads you know i had somebody write me sometimes people perceive threads differently like what i perceive as a thread that is relatively closed somebody else perceives as open and that's kind of not really the kind of thing we worry about. Somebody wrote me to ask after I, this was a while after I put up If Found. I think If Found was written in 2015, I think. Probably posted in 2016. So it's been up for a while. I read it and recently. I cried. You, oh, are you, are you, this is a hormone thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I cry every time I read it. Oh, hormone okay. Thing or not. I do. I always do. I read it like six times, I think. And I cry every time. <laughs> I cry just thinking about it. I don't know why. It just it just really hurts my heart. <laughs> I love Patrick. I love Patrick. Patrick Hubbard. got Patrick got his baby back. It, um, I mean, it's really it's really hard. And she also ruined me, ruined my life because I did not intend to make uh, Tony Patrick's secret baby in my rough trade over the summer, and yet it happened, and it's all Jilly's fault. Credit. I'll take that. I'll take the credit and the blame on that. Because sometimes I get it. Anytime I write a story that's an NCIS story, I get crossover. My own headcanon about Tony being Patrick's son gets in the way. I'm like, well, how am I going to work out the reveal that Patrick is um I didn't father? know I was going to have the problem until they were in the same room together. And then I realized that you had basically headcanoned me. And I'm, I'm stuck with it. I'm stuck with it. And it was just like, it was like... Can you? <laughs> now what am I going to do with it? <laughs> Look at this. You fi you fixed it like a boss. Brain. You fixed it like I, a boss. I had to replot. Thanks. I had to replot. A little bit. Not much. Because it's really a secondary. It's a subplot. It's a, you put it's in a thread. A... It's a thread that I pulled. Yeah. Well, you put in a subplot about Tony and, and his investigation and, and that they were turning their direct their sights potentially to him and, and you, you kind of wove that in a little bit differently maybe than you had intended because of his mm -hmm. relationship with with Patrick and, and you know his you know exposing his not exposing but revealing his relationship to, to John and then you, you pulled that thread all the way through because it wasn't like you just revealed it and then did nothing with it you also had that moment where um at the end with John and um, and Tony together um, out mm -hmm. on the pier, right? Uh, and yeah. their attack, their that, attack that's together. An important, that's an important thing to do, to pull that thread to a place where your reader is satisfied, or you hope your reader will be satisfied. Because frankly, n you will never satisfy every single one of your readers. You will never answer all of their questions. And sometimes a reader will get something out of your work that you did not intend cannot comprehend it, it it's you're like no dude aliens didn't evade 
Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's sometimes it's just incomprehensible. You're like, how how did you get here? <laughs> yeah. I, somebody mentioned that. Somebody mentioned. Were you I watching read... Bigfoot Alaska while you were reading my stuff? This is not. This didn't happen. <laughs> right. There is uh, somebody mentioned. Um, remind me to come back to the the question that somebody asked me about if found. But somebody mentioned a series where the nine one one series where there's a a dog uh, POV, but it's kind of threaded throughout. I think sometimes animal POVs can work if the author handles them deftly. I can't remember the name of it, but there's one of those, I believe, in NCIS. Um, where, and I don't remember if the dog has a POV in the story or if there's a side story with the dog's POV. His name is Major something. Y'all help me. I'm getting old. I don't. I know you've read the story because you're the one who mentioned it to me. Okay. Can I ask for more details? (laughs) I think the dog winds up working with them or something. He becomes like a working dog. I'll have to, I'll have to hunt for it later. I, I remember the dog's name. I think the dog's name is Major something or the other. Um, I'm just utterly blanking on the rest of it. And I think they actually make him an NCIS agent. The dog. Oh, oh, um, um, doesn't, don't they end up adopting some babies? Gibbs ha- knows, has a friend, either Gibbs has a friend or Tony has a friend. Bourbon and Aspirin? Yes. Yes, yes. Something yes. like that. Bourbon and Bur- Aspen. The Bourbon the Aspen babies. Series. There's some adoption babies because the couple died. They were in an accident. Yeah. I, I mean, so I was worried there I was, was conflating. I worried I was conflating stories. Sometimes you do that. You conflate multiple stories together. I thought that they were, they had, they were, Agent Zuma. Thank Zuma. you. It wasn't Major. <laughs> Agent Zuma. Thank you, Jeep. I don't want to thought Major. Wasn't there a scene in the parking garage where the dog, like, saves a day or there, there's some... Very cute. Very cute. Yeah. I think there's a whole side story from Agent Zuma's point of view. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's chapters from Agent Zuma's point of view. It's been a minute since I've read it, but maybe I'll reread it someday soon. Very cute. Soon. Very charming. Um, so Rogue saying Gemini Angel writes it. It will be on AO3 for those of you who look, will be looking for it. I do think it's Bourbon and Aspirin. Um, yeah, it's called the Bourbon and Aspirin. It's, it's, it's a series. It's a series name. But the author is Gemini Angel, and that's Gemini Angel, all one word. But you can, there are some things you can do if you handle them deftly. But when it comes to, like, putting something in the story, like, when it could, one of the things that somebody wrote me about, and they asked me if it was, if, what happened next, they felt like I'd left it unfinished in um, If Found, was what happened to Denozo Sr. I didn't feel like that was an unfinished thread. I mean, yes, you don't see the actual outcome of his trial, but... The last we see of him, he's been arrested by the FBI uh, for admitting on on being recorded admitting to knowing that he had you know basically been complicit um, in the kidnapping of one you know one of the most one of the most notorious and famous kidnappings I in mean, modern history. So Where basically, do you think he's guilty of kidnapping? Federal kidnapping. So um, where do you think that storyline is going? There's a case for human trafficking. Yeah. Um, and there's no statute there's of limitations. Special, there's also a special law, I think, about actually buying children. Even if, like, I mean, there's there are rules about how you can adopt kids and buying them is not one of them. Um, so there are probably, like, at least two federal charges pending on Denozo Sr. Um, yeah. He's going to die in prison, y'all. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, there's there's a I have a note in my sequel note, my sequel plans for that story to mention the outcome of his trial, but I don't really think didn't feel like that was in question. But for this reader, because I didn't go through it, that's the kind of reader who wants you to step through everything and give them the answer. But I feel like most people will infer what happened. You know, he's in an eight by eight he, cell. He has a toilet, a, a, a small bed, and a desk. <laughs> I felt like that subplot was basically closed, but I can pull the thread a little bit in the next story if I need to, or mention you know whatever I need to. But I wouldn't open it up as a full other subplot because by the time I get to the next story, he's he's either in um, on trial or he's going to jail. But his actual the outcome of what happened to him, I didn't feel like was ambiguous. I feel like it just takes a little bit of, you know, there's no statute of limitations on kidnapping. And so not to mention the other crimes that he's um, committed. So the FBI had arrested him the last time we see him on screen. Where else was it to talk about? And it Denoso Sr. was not what the story was about. And also, realistically, realistically speaking, there was not time enough between his arrest and the end of your story, timeline-wise, for him to even have gone to trial. That shit doesn't happen overnight, you guys. No, no. He, I he, mean, he, he probably he, spends six to eight months in custody before he ever gets in front of a judge to stand trial. So... I mean, the only thing that happened in my mind that I did not put it on screen that I could have was that he was denied bail because he's a flight risk. Definitely. He's yeah, got the I, means... Yeah, he's got. The, but I figure most people would have inferred that as well because he's got the means to flee the country, and the case is so high profile that the judge isn't going to take a chance on being the one who let him out on bond. It's also kind of always been in the back of my mind that he probably tried to call Col um, Tony Collect <laughs> from prison. <laughs> oh, you know he tried to contact Tony. It probably gives too. <laughs> probably like the only person thing that he probably. Probably the only person he got through to was Gibbs, because Tony has, you know, he had, Tony had to change his phone number, but he could easily get and Gibbs. Gibbs would be like, "Hell yeah, I'll accept the charges. <laughs> Put that motherfucker on the phone." <laughs> I have some things to say. Well, Patrick totally implies. I mean, it's it's unambiguous that Patrick's pretty cutthroat in that story. It's not that he he does it. I think he he's he's got the in sort of the entitlement of a man with a lot of power um not in a way that he kind of flashes it but he basically alludes to the fact that he's not going to in the case that tony's working where matthew could have potentially been a victim he basically says flat out that he's not going to interfere as long as the justice system handles it properly but if they don't he'll take care of it well, what do you think that means <laughs> that man's life is ruined <laughs> And Denoso Sr. The day Senior, my cousin got married, the day my cousin got married, my uncle, her daddy, stands up at the wedding, toasts the bride and groom, looks at the son, looks at the son-in-law whom he adored, and he said, "You better take care of my baby girl, because if you don't, you'll be safer in prison." And we all toasted. <laughs> okay. Because he fucking meant it. <laughs> and the and the son-in-law just said, "Yes, sir." <laughs> Conditions accepted. <laughs> We're Southern. <laughs> What's a family event without death threats? <laughs> right. 
Patrick would only have anything to do with Senior if Senior got out of prison. Yeah, um, I, I see that. At least prior to trial. I could see there potentially maybe being under some circumstances if once the man's convicted and he's behind bars in a federal prison that Patrick, there might be a teeny tiny chance that Patrick might go confront him in prison and say, well, was it worth it? <laughs> but I probably would never, I would never write that because I'm just not interested in exploring um, Patrick venting his spleen. Uh, but it's not an undealt with thing because most people can infer what logically happened. What would be, uh, if let's, I'm trying to think of, if I had, um, let's say, okay, so one of the, one of the things that actually is a very instrumental um, little subplot that I pulled, it, it's instrumental in, it's, the story's even framed in a way in, with it, is the issue of Alex's name. Um, is what name is he going to go by? Is he going to be Alex Shepard? Is he going to be, say, Tony Dinozo? What is he going to do legally about that? Can you imagine if I had raised that question and then never addressed it? Never finalized an answer on that? <laughs> and that's the kind of thing, that's what we, that, that would be, uh, uh, we'd get to the end of people, but what about his name? Can you imagine if I'd ended the story? Everybody, you know, probably there'd been a collective, you know, everybody going, but what about his name? Name? I would like, we would all been drawing straws to see who asked you if you forgot to add a scene. Did you did you skip a scene in your edit? Because you didn't tell us what name he was going to go by. You were going to do that. Oh right? yeah. <laughs> because in in the thing is in the narrative, um, in Tony's POV, in Tony's own POV, because I write a deep POV for at least for my main character. Um, in his POV, um he thinks of himself and refers to himself, his POV, he's Tony. Until he makes that decision that he's going to leave that behind, he's going to be Alex. And from that moment, he's then Alex in, in the narrative, in the, you know, outside of dialogue. And so there's a, there's a, there's a switch that's flipped that moment that he goes to court and he looks at it. Cause he, he actually, it's discussed that he's not going to make that decision until he's in front of the judge. And he literally puts it off waiting for his gut reaction when the judge um, asks him, what do you want, what name do you want? Because we have to make, you know, you're not legally actually Tony Donozo. Um, so we're going to have to do some, but if you, if you're want to be Alex Shepard, we're going to have to make write some orders for you to get <laughs> all of your stuff changed. So from that moment, that moment that he makes that choice, the narrative changes and he becomes Alex Shepard in, in the story at that moment, because that's the moment he chooses to leave Tony Donozo behind. And the rest of the story is exploring um, what that really means and letting go of the things that are really entrenched in the things that mattered to that that old part of him, that old life he had. So if I had just left that out and not ever resolved it, just raised the question and never resolved it, or worse, had him walking into the courtroom and never expose what happened and never change the narrative so that you know, don't know. You, all you're left to do is infer that he chose Tony Donozo. And everybody just calls him Tony and nobody ever addresses him even by his last name. It could be, it could feel like I had thrown out this major thing. This, especially it's an emotional thing too. And then not given any resolution to it. And so I think you have to be very careful about throwing out things that are big if you're not going to go anywhere with it. 
and we even talked about we've, I know we've talked about that in another podcast too about like you putting big plot devices in because they're bright and shiny because it seems like a good idea and then not going anywhere with it because it's, it it's just going to ask it's just going to lend itself to asking a whole bunch of questions that you might not want to answer Right, and your readers are still sitting there stuck on, but what does this guy do when he travels back in time? How does he know he could travel back in time if he never does it? Why did he even tell this guy if he's never willing to do it? And you're, the story is 60,000 words. Does he just do it words. for naps? He just does right? it for naps. <laughs> That's what I would do. It's like my own personal time. <laughs> I mean, timer. that's like prime napping time right there. I've got to sleep in as much as I want. Um... <laughs> I mean, if you, but he claimed claimed to never use the ability, it can never be used. Um, I mean, it sets it up for him to make a personal sacrifice to use it later, to go against this founding principle thing that he has. He has this gift, he doesn't use it, he finds it unethical, and then there's a moment later on. You're you keep waiting for that moment as the reader for him to make that decision to use this gift to the benefit of the others around him. Except he and then he, he doesn't. He doesn't. And you're like, what the fuck? What about the time travel? <laughs> so it is important for the, your sanity also because the thing is, as much as I, I am not a fan, we've talked about this also to death, of readers giving authors a hard time. The reality is it's still going to happen, and it's you're gonna you're gonna hear about it if you put a big boulder into your story and and then just pretend like it's not there. It's like look at this beautiful landscape. I can't see anything past the boulder. <laughs> I'm sorry. What do you want me to see? Oh, the bonsai tree on the other side of this enormous rock. I'm sorry. I don't see that well. And just imagine that's what some of these like plot devices are. They're bigger than the story that is actually told. And all you can think about is this enormous thing that has, that should be doing something and it does nothing. And so you go, well, why is it there? I talked to somebody else once. Um, she was frustrated with um, how story, she, you know, she had written. She wasn't sure what was wrong with it. It was already done. Um, and we talked about it. We talked about it. Um, this was a long, long time ago. Um, and, and the issue was way back, wow, way back in my exiles days. And the issue was that she had put a big, a big piece of world building into her story. Um, basically related to alien, um, the colonization of aliens. She had done a big piece of world building around that, which if you're familiar with X-Files canon, you know that, um, that's a huge, a huge, th that is the myth arc. That's the, that's the mythology of the alien colonization is what the show's sort of about. But, so she, she'd done this huge thing in basically in the middle of what amounted to a sweet romance. And the story ended and she said, I felt there's just something like not quite right about this. And the kind of the response I've gotten to it has been kind of lackluster. And she asked me for my you know opinion about it. And I said, well, the story is really overshadowed by this enormous piece of world building you did. She said, well, I just thought that was really interesting. And I thought I've had that on my mind forever about the alien colonization. And, you know, I just really wanted to you know put it out there. And I was like, yeah, but it doesn't really fit in the story though. 
and the issue was it could have fit in the story if she'd done something with it, but she didn't, and so it just was like this thing. It was just this thing. It was like, um, I don't know. It's like somebody wearing a sweater that's got one random pom pom hanging off of it, and all you can look at is the pom pom, and you're like, why is that there? Where are is the it, others? Is there supposed to be another pom pom? No, just the one. Is it supposed to be distracting? Is there a hole under it? Is that why you stuck it there? <laughs> What's with the pom-pom? I mean, all you can look at is, is it a nice sweater? I don't know, because all I remember is the pom-pom. This may have happened at Jamba Juice. Um, <laughs> She's covered up her hole badly. Yeah, yeah, probably. I would I'd use a patch or I don't know anything before just taking a random pom-pom on my boob. Um, <laughs> I'd probably stuck them all over the sweater. Yeah, I mean, at least balance it out. Put a pom-pom on both sides. All of that starts to feel like nipple pasties, but, you know, whatever. But you just have to be careful about some, putting something bright and shiny. And we all can be a little bit... Authors create. Authors are creative. And we can all be a little bit like magpies. And we we have good ideas and we're things we think are very clever. And even sometimes the people that are closest go, oh my God, that is really clever. You should do that. And this is one of the things is where it helps to have authors you trust who can help rein you in, who will, who can say to you gently, that is really an amazing idea. What are you going to do with it? Because just, oh, that's really clever. You should use it is more enablement than um, helpful. Helpful. Yeah. And we all know that there are some diehard enablers in fandom. Yeah. Yeah. There's one server chat room right now. <laughs> <laughs> there are some there is a server that several of us were on for a while where they had a writing channel. People would ask questions and somebody asked like a gentle like a it's a very gentle question and response, basically along the lines of what I said. Not exactly, but along the lines of what I said where they put something out and they said, well, that's really kind of interesting. What, what, what would you do with it in the story though? Where would you take it? And they were told by, by a moderator of the server that even that kind of uh, oblique criticism can be discouraging to writers and you need to, um, you know, that it's not allowed on the server to, to, um, like questions aren't allowed. People come in and say, what do you all think of this idea? And you're just supposed to say, you're supposed to, which basically means that all you're allowed to say is, oh, that's great. You should do it. Because if you'd said, no, that sucks, <laughs> you'd also get in trouble for that. Which means, you know, basically the function of the people in the chat when a writer comes in is to act as their fluffer. And I ain't nobody's fluffer. <laughs> <laughs> uh-uh. Pretty sure that Worst job never paid. I mean, there might be some people who are really into it, but it'd have to pay really well, quite frankly. I mean, Can you imagine. I think there are two really awful jobs on a porn set. Fluffer is one, laundry is the other. Well, at least with laundry, you can put on a mask and some gloves and just toss it all <laughs> out. <laughs> With your fluffer, you know, I mean, what are you going to do? You're supposed to be keeping the guy hard, right? So you can't just go in and put on some, put on a hazmat suit and think he's going to keep his erection. He's like, why are you dressed like there's a biohazard in here? Well, they told me to keep you erect, so, well, I just completely lost my boner now. 
But if the rules of a writing group are nothing but unequivocal, unequivocal support, that is basically acting as their fluffer. If they ask a question and say, what do you all think of this idea? And the only thing you're allowed to say is that's great, you should do it, which is basically what these rules imply. Because just asking the question, where would you take that in your story, is supposedly discouraging. Then well, how is that helpful? How is that helpful to a writer? How is that helping them improve? How is that helping them craft a good story? If you just want to get your story written and get lots of attention, well, that's, you know, we don't do these podcasts for those people. As Kira said many times in the past, we're not here for you. <laughs> we're never here for you. And we're definitely I mean, not your fluffer. No. No. Um, I have been around writers a long, hold on. Sorry, I was chewing a cough drop. I did it out of my mouth. Um, that's gross. Sorry. Okay, anyways. It's a very nice cough drop. Honey. Honey flavored. Anyways. Um, I've been around a lot of writers my life, uh, my, my whole life, basically. I, I have sought out that company, coveted that company, because I, um... And most comfortable around other writers creatively. Uh, there have been good experiences and bad experiences. Um, and a lot of my bad experiences come from writers who require constant validation and attention. And they honestly can be exhausting in real life. Um, that struggle for with their, their own self-esteem and their own worth as a writer um, is above most people's pay grade that's I'm, I'm not your rehab center um but in fandom it's a different kind of animal it's not about self-esteem or worry about their ability as a writer it's 100 percent about attention which is narcissism and that narcissism in fandom takes can, can take a really ugly tone when it comes to um, popularity, um, content, fandom policing. We see it a lot. Um, and in readers, it manifests differently than it does in, in people who write for attention. I don't even want to call them writers. Um, but they don't feel like writers to me. If if you're not if you're not writing every day for you, if if you're not compelled to write, um, and you only write to post online, I don't think you're a writer. I think you're an attention whore who found a, a supply. Writers are born. They're born to create. They they have a story in their soul to tell. But if you don't have a story in your soul and you're only writing for money or attention, I don't think you're a writer. That's my opinion. But the readers on this other side of the coin, the ones who are feeding these attention seekers, um, who are feeding these movements around controlling content and bullying writers who don't, who don't do exactly what they want, um, create a really ugly atmosphere where quantity is more important than quality. And once you get there, you stop developing as a writer. Um, and even if you are someone who is compelled to write, who has that story in their soul, who who has this narrative in their brain 24-7, basically, um, you could fall prey to that mentality where it is better to write, I don't know, 
10,000 words a week, that's okay. Versus 5,000 words, uh, 5, words a week, which is amazing. And I would rather write 500 words of something amazing than 10,000 words of something that's just okay. And that means that I pay attention to my threads and I don't throw giant boulders in the middle of my plot to excite and confuse my readers. I don't underwarn on my fix because I don't care if my readers are hurt by the words that I, that I, that I use and the stories that I tell. But these people who post fiction in fandom, who don't further their craft, who don't learn every day about the stories that they're telling, who don't, who regurgitate the same idea over and over and over and over and over again, who steal other people's ideas and regurgitate those over and over and over again. <laughs> the boulder is conflicted. The boulder is always conflicted. Um, they're not, they're not contributing in a valuable way. And all they are doing is creating this mentality and fandom that's quite ugly. You have readers who are super demanding, who want you to, who, who praise 500,000 words of nonsense on AO3, who say, oh, this is amazing. It's so good. Why? Because it was 500,000 words? Yes, that is exactly what they mean. Not because it was good, not because I love the characters, because it was five, 500,000 words. <laughs> yes, Sam. Yeah, they are. Um, and when I, every day, when I sit down to write, every how many hours I have to dedicate to, it, to the day, um, I try to, to put myself in a different place, to learn something new about my craft, to explore my characters, to develop new ideas, and to move forward as a writer. When I see a writer in original fiction or in fan fiction or whatever, it doesn't matter what kind of fiction you write. It doesn't, it doesn't matter to me at all if you write fan fiction or original fiction. I do not care. If you are stagnating and you're not learning from your craft and you're just making the same mistakes over and over and over again and you're still telling me a story 10 years later when you know you should be showing me a story, honestly, you make me really sad. How'd you get here? Why aren't you growing? So if you're not growing and it's not your intent to ever grow, then no. These podcasts are never for you. <laughs> not even the bitchy ones that are funny for you guys in retrospect to listen to. They're not for you. I don't, I don't mean that to be ugly. I just mean if you're not going to grow, if you're not going to work on your craft, if you're not going to move forward as a creative person, then why? Then why? why? Yeah, what are you doing? Why are you here? Now, I know there are non-writers who listen to this show. And we're not talking to you. You, We want you here. You, you listen to all of our stuff. Absorb it. But if you hear, if you're a writer and you hear writing, writing advice that pisses you off, um, or because it's hitting one of your buttons, it's pushing one of your buttons and making you unhappy, um, you need to fix yourself. Yeah. If you are throwing a big boulder in your plot for shock and awe, and you have no intention of ever addressing it ever again, shame on you. And what was the point of that? And sometimes I do think people put, I've actually seen discussions, people put something out there. They wrote a story. I saw this discourse once on a, really it was the, I, w I would call it the logical um, consequence of something that occurred. One of the logical, sometimes there can be multiple logical consequences. But if you sat down with 10 people and you said, based upon this, this, or 
you know, 100 people. You ask 100 people, based upon this event happening, what are the most logical outcomes? Half of them would have said path B, okay? Or path A. So we'll go path A. This author basically slapped together a five or six cake story where path A happens and they slapped it together as fast as they possibly could. And path A had very little to do, this consequence had very little to do with the story they actually wrote. So it felt like it was just out there for no reason. And their actual reason for doing it was so they could be the first one to write it and claim some kind of idea ownership over it. So they could claim I can't other... even explain to you what my face just did, but it hurt. I mean, I saw the discussion happening. Like, oh, I was the first to write it. That's my idea. Um, just because, for starters, there's no such thing as idea ownership. But this was an actual discussion that was going on, and people were trying to validate their feelings on the subject. And nobody was actually saying you can't own an idea, dingling. And just because you slapped together you know, 6K within a few hours of the episode airing and threw it up. And this this consequence that you put in had nothing whatsoever to do with the actual story you told. It does not actually mean that... I mean, you They did it to feel like they could block other people from writing it, which... <laughs> doesn't work that way. It doesn't It doesn't work that way. For sure, people, if people want to write it, they're going to write it. And they're also making an assumption that anybody who would write that idea actually reads their work. So... Um, we don't read your work. <laughs> yeah. No, they, they Whenever weren't. Whenever somebody like, um, so I got an email about six months ago um, where this woman was pointing out a great deal of similarity between my most recent Quantum Bang and something on AO3. Now, I didn't even bother to go look on AO3. Because one, number one, I don't care. And number two, she was implying that I lifted this person's idea because of when I posted my quantum bang to my website. So I sent my quantum bang the link from the original posting, which based on her information that she sent me in this email, which I think it was her fic. I don't know for certain. Um, like I said, I didn't go look was done six months before that AO3 fit started getting posted. I never did hear back from them. I also had someone accuse me once of stealing the birth of the, birth of the Serpent King. From who? There was a fic on um, fanfiction.net. It wasn't even the Franken fic. It was a different fic. And it was published like four years after Birth of the Serpent King. People, uh, the thing, here's, it, hmm. publication dates, I have, is, is the thing that I have learned is publication dates to some degree can be a little bit difficult because things can be, you know, as y'all know, they can be backdated. Emails, however, mm -hmm. the email notifications, they don't change. So there's like this weird Frankenfic that it, I stumbled on recently, um, there is a weird hodgepodge of, of, I would say stuff that feels like from stuff I've written and stuff Kira's written, and to the point that I started like, well, maybe this, I was trying to give it the benefit of the doubt, like this, this feels familiar, that feels really familiar. Okay, this is almost beat for beat like a conversation that occurred in one of my stories, but. It predates supposedly something that I anything I wrote the thing I wrote that had that in it. Here's the thing: the story was backdated. 
on AO3. And there's a way to tell that a story has been backdated. And backdated by quite a lot. Um, meaning that it looked like it was posted, I want to say, in 2010 or 2011 or 2012, something Ex like that. Except every single comment was made in 2022. <laughs> yeah. The story. The, the, so you the went 12 years without a fucking comment? Seriously? <laughs> the, yeah, the story, the story actually, if you sort the, the story, the story by date, by publication date, it actually is listed between two stories that were published in 2022. So it's backdated to, and the thing is, I mean, whatever they they had some notes about porting their work over from other sites or whatever uh and then they deleted their work from those other sites so all all other all other instances of their work no longer exist so those backdating and so you know i'm sure i'm gonna get some shit at some point about well um, i'll tell you what when that person sends us both notes telling us that we stole from her we should both respond Asking her for proof of when her story was literally published on AO3. And the only proof we'll take is from the administrator of AO3 telling us when her story was added to their database. Then, she's going to have to contact the owners of fanfiction.net and have them tell us when her story was added and deleted from their database. And then I'll believe it. And if it. she can prove... That her work predates ours by 15 years, that I will publish a full-length apology on the front page of my website. I mean, it is bizarre. I mean, it is, it's not outside the realm of possibility that people can really use the same tropes. And But this is a bizarre yeah. level. This is a bizarre level of coincidence. Um, to the point that I have a really hard time even using that particular C word, uh... But you know, it, it is what it I is. I don't believe Pe in coincidences. <laughs> yeah, people people are people are going to do what they're going to do. But it was really odd. Like you see, all the comments and stuff are from the last two years, and the story is uh, dated back like fifteen years ago. Okay, okay, sure. Okay, um, honey. But. Back, and I understand some people, some people do backdate their work when they bring it in from wherever it originally was. But even an email showing that, oh, this story published, wouldn't even that would be proof because like a posting notification from AO, from a fanfiction.net or from a website often just gives you the title. It doesn't actually give you any kind of content. Right. So even that doesn't mean anything. All it means is that they posted a story on AO3 and some other archive with the same name and backdated it to the same date that they had put it on this other place so the fact that they you know er erased their prior proof that it it's suspicious let me just say it's just suspicious <laughs> it's suspicious i don't actually i have no i the only time that i've ever actually like super interfered with somebody copying my work is when they literally copied my work when it yeah, was word just like word. them word for word copying my work into their frankenfic and it wasn't even all the same work they were taking stuff from that old black magic and birth of the serpent king totally bizarre and then a couple other i mean i here's an interesting feature of grammarly if you turn on grammarly's plagiarism check on a fic that's been plagiarized it will not only tell you the works that have been plagiarized it will give you links to them when i put this thing through Grammarly's 
plagiarism check, it scoured the internet for like fiction and found 15 different stories this person had used to create their Frankenfic. They basically treat everybody else's work as their paragraph library. I'll take a paragraph from this and a paragraph. Literal. That's that's actual plagiarism to take other people's words. This other story that we're talking about wasn't. They, they definitely. That's were, just attention whore. I mean, that, the only reason you would do that was to get attention. Yeah, there's no other reason. To, there's no other reason for plagiarism. Period. Than attention whore. And money, if you're if you if you're doing it professionally. Well, yeah. Until but, you get caught and you get sued and you're fucked up. <laughs> this other thing wasn't this other thing wasn't plagiarism because they they definitely wrote their own story, but when it's getting to the point where like when something like when the scene is like beat for beat the same, it's getting weird. It's crossing into a weird, uh, almost mimicry kind of thing that is extremely uncomfortable. And the well, thing no, is, because it's not plagiarism, but what they're trying to do is to avoid attribution. They don't want to admit that they were inspired by another writer. I they still want to don't be ever... this super original creature whose all their ideas are pure and their own. Idea purity. <laughs> we have achieved idea purity. Yeah, but 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 do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. They don't want to admit they they want to be this perfect creation inspirational creation thing creature that doesn't need anybody else to be inspired by which is so weird and so beyond the human experience that i don't understand i don't get it but i guess when you have no talent that's that's what you have to do mimic other people who do have talent what's well, what you have to do to get attention <laughs> you don't have to do it <laughs> Yeah, you don't have you to. I attention. mean, you could act like a you could act like a decent human, but just sometimes with this other person, they could just have given attribution. I mean, just say where you got it. There was a story on Ao3 that literally, literally was a clone of something very popular on my site, and we'll leave it at that. The author went out of their way to attribute every single bit of it to a different author and a professional author at that when none of the world building or details matched the story that she told in any single way. Didn't they even make a point of saying that they hadn't read your work? Yes. When it was most 100% clear that, that they had. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like... I don't care, but you're being really weird right now. It's like just I mean the stories were you know with the I remember this I remember this event pretty well. The stories were at uh, at any level quite quite different, but the world building was the same, and so to the need to not attribute. Um, because I have just... an open policy on that kind of thing on my site. It's listed on my site because I got tired of people emailing me about it. I was getting emails daily sometimes about permissions. So I just took a permission page up there. I don't care to a certain extent. I had to make some rules about our original characters because people got stupid. But really stupid. I don't understand, especially in fandom, when 
you do what like you're one of the first things you do on AO3 is pick your fandom. So you are attributing already. You're already playing in somebody else's sandbox. Why would you deny the same level of respect you're giving to the canon resources to somebody else who's in the trenches right beside you? If another fandom writer inspires you, it's respectful to acknowledge that. And if you don't remember who wrote it or who did it, put a little note and said, hey, I read this once on fanfiction.net in the middle of the night about 10 years ago. <laughs> I don't remember the details, but if you do, you can let me know. But I found this idea specifically really entertaining. So I'm using it here. It's not hard. Is it shameful or something? I don't understand. I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it at all. Did I send that person a letter? No. Have I ever responded to the people who complain about the Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond clone currently being written on AO3? No. I've not read it. I won't be reading it. Um, I imagine they're going to run out of material soon and be really upset. <laughs> I never wrote a season two. How dare you not give them the material they're looking for? Right? Sounds like that heifer who stole that that hobbit fic. Yes. Then she had to post that she just couldn't write on it anymore because she was no longer inspired. Well, she was no longer fucking inspired because the original author stopped writing. Because she got tired of the, you know, the 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 stands of the person stealing her shit. And this was a this was a plot clone, is what it was. This was someone cloning her plot, and um. Well, I did put that side by side, and it wasn't just plot cloning. There were instances where she lifted whole pieces of dialogue as well. Ugh. Yeah. Ugh. Because I put them side by side in Word and compared them. There was some... It was beat for beat. She was copying her plot. And there were instances where she lifted whole pieces of dialogue. I think because she wasn't talented enough to figure out how to rewrite it. That's just some ugly-ass behavior right there. Desert says she even asked the author she was copying if she was going to continue the story in a comment. That is so ballsy and awful. As my uncle would say, the fuck you say. I mean, you almost got to admire the balls on that on that bitch. I I <laughs> I don't I don't know. I mean, maybe not really, but I mean, I kind of almost want to clap and go, "Well done." Solid brass. <laughs> What's that line in speed? You got some big hairy cojones. <laughs> yeah, gross Ortiz, but thanks. Gross Ortiz. <laughs> it's funny how things stick in your head because the moment I said it, I actually heard gross Ortiz in my head. <laughs> I did too. Obviously, that's why it came right out of my mouth. Because I have low impulse control. <laughs> there was an interview where Kenny Reeves was asked if there was a part he could play again, what what it would be. Um, and he picked Constantine. And I was thinking to myself, you know what? They should make a speed three. <laughs> Put his old jaded ass somewhere. Just see what he does. I think it might get a little more violent. <laughs> Oh, I think so, yes. <coughs> I think Keaton Reeves is a stand-up human being. I'm not saying he's jaded. I'm saying that his character from Speed would be jaded. I mean, Keaton Reeves is practically like a, a, 
a human living he, muffin. I mean, he's just like adorable he, cupcake. He is. He's a fucking unicorn, man. <laughs> Sorry, Astrophy. That's horrible. <laughs> Constituted speed three. <laughs> Things would definitely get violent. But he said, but he was asked. I think it was Stephen Colbert asked him what role he'd like to do again, and he the, he said Constantine. Um, I think I've watched Constantine once. I kind of want to watch it again. Because maybe if we all go watch it and it gets really popular in streaming, they'll they'll let him make a new one. <laughs> and if Kenny I mean, Reeves wants to make a new Constantine movie, they should just let him. They should let him do what he wants. I agree. I'm just saying. Keanu Reeves, that should, he should just get his way. That should just be that should just be the he's rule. A, he, he's a unicorn. He's definitely. They a unicorn. They let him make another Bill and Ted movie. <laughs> Why can't we have a new Constantine movie? They are making a new Constantine, Willow says. When did I watch that? How old was that interview that I watched? Or did that interview actually get him a call? Well, he might have said That is awesome. He might have said it and somebody went, oh, well, okay. Okay. Someone call him. <laughs> Who's writing it? <laughs> Who does he want to write it? <laughs> Can we get one of those Wachowski sisters? Are they still sisters? Unless they've disowned each other. Okay. I, I, was, I honestly thought one of them might have died. That, that's why I paused. Because I don't know why I thought that. I don't know, actually. Uh, now that you... Oh! That... It's because I read an article about why she wrote The Matrix 3 about someone close to her dying. And it kind of blended into my head. She said she wrote it because she had lost someone very special to her. Um, and she couldn't bring them back. But she could resurrect her favorite character. So she did. Um, it just kind of, that, that blended in my brain for a second and I thought, wait, is there still two or is there just one? And so, that's why. <sighs> it was a friend, not obviously her sister, it was just a friend. But I thought, I thought, I, I went, my brain. I went right to drama, like, did they disown each other? <laughs> I mean, sisterly spats can get real. Or do they prefer to be called siblings now? I don't want to get it wrong. I thought they were being called sisters. But if I got it wrong, I apologize. This is in September. So, yeah. Well, I'll have to read that later. I clicked it. I'm super excited for him. I'm glad he got his way. I'm glad he got his way, too. If Keanu wants to make another Constantine movie, Keanu gets to make another Constantine movie. These are the rules that we have just made up. <laughs> Give that unicorn what he wants. Speaking of unicorns, next year on Rough Trade is the year of the unicorn, and I have told Jillian, and this is a public service to all of you, that she has to write happy fic next year. <laughs> all year, yes. I have been happy, given my happy, marching happy fluff. <laughs> I have been given my marching orders. I have to write happy stuff next year. I told her to recondo her idea garden. <laughs> <laughs> Find what sparks yeah. joy. Kira, I have a suspicion that she's off coughing. I think that her laughter made her cough. Um, but um, yeah, a little. Can you hear me? We, yeah, I can hear you. My yeah, brain okay. just kind of. I had, I had a I had a momentary blue screen there. Um, uh, we're asking about there. Oh, you so someone had a question about if found. Did you ever answer it? I think so. If I otherwise okay. I missed it. You said to remind I, you that there was a question you wanted to answer. Oh, oh no, that I was mentioning the question that somebody had sent me, which I did talk about about asking about what happened with Denosa because they thought oh, that it was okay. They thought that it was uh, an unanswered, an un. 
an unresolved thread. Oh, okay. Which I okay. disagree. You know, we talked about how I disagree that that's an unresolved, unresolved thread. So when we're I looking thought at... you meant a question in the chat. No, no, no. Because I, I, I was I, confused. I was kind of going off on a tangent of my own and wanted to <coughs> come back to that question somebody had sent me. But Tangents? Uh, we don't go off on tangents. I know. I know. We never do. Just please um, ignore that fat last 15 minutes. We just been talking about Constantine. We have we've had a whole podcast that are nothing but tangents. Um, yeah. Someone's but, asking what our all-time unicorns are these days. Christopher Diaz. <laughs> Christopher Diaz. Um, that, like, duh. He's everybody's unicorn. Um, next question? year, I'm riding Harry Potter, John Shepard, and Eddie Diaz as my unicorns. Um, it is I've, never I've, time to mention the, the turduckins. No, it is. Ne- yeah, <laughs> it, is, it, it is never turduckin time. Of course, it is pretty close to Thanksgiving in America, so. I'm still not having a turduckin. <laughs> no, I've never even seen a turduckin in real life. But we can't go down the turduckin beam road again. No, we'll never come out. <laughs> Shame on you. <laughs> but no, I'm riding John Shepard, Eddie Diaz, and Harry Potter next year. So those are my those are my um, unicorns for the year. So we have three challenges, and um, there will be two themes on each Rough Trade challenge. And our overall arching theme is the year of the unicorn. So you're supposed to take your favorite character and match them to your theme and write for each event. I'm definitely going to do Tony. For we one. let her put one picture in the chat, and now she's showing us obscenities with turkeys. That is just something is so not right about that. The lack of bones bothers me a lot. Yeah, I um. Okay, Julie's writing. I don't know. Um, I haven't made. A f- I've I've picked. Well, I picked one for sure, which is Tony. I'm going to do something Tony-centric, because, I mean, that's, that's sort, of, sort of, for me in this iteration of my fandom life, that's sort of my OG unicorn. Um, and then um, I'm I'm trying to decide. I, it'll it, When I sit down to plot is when I'll make a decision, because I kind of have, in 911 as an adult, I would say Buck is my unicorn, um, but sort of Christopher is also my unicorn unicorn. I mean, I think Christopher actually may be a unicorn. So, um but when I just sit down to plot, uh, I'll, I'll make a decision if I can actually carry a plot through that's really very Christopher-centric. So I'll have to think about that, or whether it's going to be a Buck story or Christopher story. And then I haven't made a decision about the third one. So um, I'm still pondering a couple of options. Um, I thought about writing a John Shepard story, um, and I thought about writing um, something for The Hobbit. And I also thought about another Harry Potter story, even though I swore off Harry Potter. But we'll see how I feel about it when we get. Uh, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta stack up the challenges. Take the one I'm the most excited for, and you know, and then I'll probably work it back to the one I'm the least excited about. Mm. Yes, yeah, so I'm I a, think a, a little on the fence about it. My, I'm gonna write my tsunami fic next year, I think. Oh, tsunami fic is always good. I love good tsunami fic. I think fic. that when you write in a fandom, there are some fics that you know, everybody has to write. If you write in NCIS, you have to write dead air fic. Yes. I've written tsunami a few times. There's still a, like a couple of stories, ideas that I have still not written in, of, that, are, that are tsunami fics. Um, I wanted to write a... Um, I actually did plot another tsunami story. Um, I thought about taking the... Um, We've talked about that I had issues with um, 
some issues with some, some decisions I made in Emergence that were making it difficult for me to write the sequel. Mm-hmm. Full on write the sequel. And I would need to rewrite that. And we'd kind of talked about, and you just kind of thrown out the idea, well, you could always just, you know, go forward and write, you know, you know, fix the world building in your own head and just write something new. And so I, I thought about that and I thought about what well, I could just do that. I could just write a new story and say, hey, this is inspired by Emerge with the world building is a little bit different. Um, you write and a fan write, fiction of your own fan fiction if you want. <laughs> I can do whatever the fuck I want. But, and so write it as, um, um, write it around the tsunami. Um, and that Eddie especially trained, he's a dragon, he's the only one that's, uh, he's especially trained to handle search and rescue as a dragon and certain things. So he's doing air rescue during the tsunami. I don't know if people would be comforted by that or not. Well, there's a giant, I'm, I'm in the water and I need to be rescued, but that's a dragon. <laughs> yeah, but if it's a world where dragons are known... If you yeah, see it, a dragon, hell yeah, come get me, boo. Come, come, get, come on. Get me up. <laughs> so I was thinking that roller, that, that Ferris wheel thing would be a little bit different because Eddie just kind of pick it up and move it. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's, that's not going down. Hold so, on. But, but he would he also, <laughs> when he gets out there to, he, when he gets out there to do rescue, he's going to hear his son. So yeah. um, it's going to change. It would change things quite a bit. Um, so that was kind of what I was um, um, noodling on for sort of bringing some of that dragon world building um, that I did for, um, you know, emergence and fixing it, fixing some of the things I didn't like about the world building for emergence and putting them into a, a new universe. Most of my readers, if they've read what might've been in Lantian legacy, they've read an AU of an AU because Lantian, Lantian legacy is an AU of, of, of what might've been. So you meant that title very literally. Yeah. <laughs> it was what might've been. <laughs> <laughs> and I always thought it was the song. <laughs> I love that fucking song. Breaks my heart, but I love it. Um, yeah. Oh, that's um, Finding Atlantis. I just set off the A word. You be quiet. Did she think you said Alexa when you said Atlantis? Yes, she did. Boy, she that's, that's delusions of grandeur right there. <laughs> Lady Holder's the link queen. She's anyway, good at it. She's, she, she's quick. When she's not um, putting obscene pictures of turkeys on the server. <laughs> turkey obscenities. Um, so, <clears throat> when you are um, deciding what you're going to put in your story, and maybe this is where the thread comes comes in, is, and we've, we've actually given this advice before in the subplot podcast. I'm pretty sure it was a subplot podcast, but also probably in the... Uh, any of the major plotting podcasts that we've done about story structure, and we usually give this advice, is when you put something in your story, you need to understand what you're going to do with it. Even if you're a pantser, even if you don't know the ultimate end game for your story, when you bring in a major element, when you're basically when you're throwing a, a boulder into that, it, you as a pantser, you may not know if it's a pebble you're throwing or a rock or a boulder. But if you know what you're planning to do with it, then you're not going to, you lessen the likelihood that you're going to get stuck. And you lessen the likelihood that you're going to have this just big dangling thread that um, makes everything, that sort of undoes all of your good hard work because the, the readers are so distracted by what the questions you didn't answer that they aren't paying attention to the story that you did give them. And Which can ultim- be very disheartening in the comments because you'll be yeah. getting questions instead of like, it does look really good. 
I need to get why my turkey out of the damn freezer, don't I? Why are we looking at turkeys? Because I, th- I complained about the obscene turkey she, she, she posted earlier, I guess. Oh, okay. Um, so, when you are deciding what you're going to put in your story, when you're deciding what plot elements you're going to pull through, and, and when you're going to deciding what threads you're going to leave hanging, leaving something hanging should not be a function of writer fatigue. And I think that's one of the things, one of the one of the things that winds up happening with authors is that they, I'm really tired of this, this, you know, working this plot out was just more work than I expected it to be. And I just don't want to deal with it. So I'm just going to say that it's, you know, it's, I'm done with it or I'm going to use. And honestly, this kind of, I will say this annoys me is when I hear somebody say, I'm leaving myself room for a sequel because I feel badly quoted, quite frankly. (laughs) This is like the Stephen King and the adverbs all over again. Or Kira, I feel like you're badly quoting Kira. Somebody's being badly quoted. Don't do it. That is not what that means. Um, Throwing a boulder out there and then just calling it arbitrarily done is not leaving yourself room for a sequel. It is actually, what it's doing is if it was a professional work, well, if it was a professional work, it wouldn't get published. But if you were self-publishing, what you would be doing is you'd be turning off your readers and they probably wouldn't read your second book. Because they wouldn't trust you. But in the in the world of good storycraft, it's just not a good idea to to put elements in your story, major world building elements or major conflict elements or major interpersonal conflict that you don't know how you're going to get out of it. And a lot of times people put stuff in stories that are so big. And I understand, like I could sometimes I'll see somebody put something in like it's a short story challenge or something and there's this element that they put in I go holy crap that's like 300k to resolve that what are they going to do and then they don't do anything with it and is that fatigue or is it they don't know what to do with it or was it was just seemed kind of like a good idea to mention but they don't actually know how to resolve that I mean I don't know what that is because I'm not going to unsolicited go to somebody and say so this choice you made I have questions (laughs) Not so much about the choice it's not so much about the choice itself, but about why you made the choice why did you run out of energy? Um, what was it? <laughs> this is what happens when you post a work in progress. And I know some people thrive in that kind of situation. I also realize that a lot of people don't. And how I know this is the the vast number of unfinished works we have in fandom tells me so. Yeah. But also even people who thrive in works in progress, the minute their life hits a bump um, the tone of their, that you'll see a sudden tone shift in their author notes. Um, you know, guys, I got a lot going on and I know that I said I would be updating every Sunday or I know that I said this or I know I said that or, you know, you start seeing this tone shift in their author notes and they're getting very frustrated by the, basically what amounts to harassment. Um, and they stop, they stop thriving because life is difficult. And the writing becomes difficult and they write because they want the writing to be fun. And sometimes my best advice for writers is if you're struggling in life, don't write something that isn't fun for you. Fun for you might be something very different than fun for me, but I just think write what is fun for you so that you look forward to writing. If I posted all of my work as I went, I would have probably upwards of 2.5 million words in progress right now. And my readers would hate me. Because I've been writing that Mass Effect story for about two years now. 
And I just now got to the suicide mission, which is like the end of the game in game two. And nobody's going to die. It's just, it's literally called the suicide mission in the, in the game. Um, now, if you play the game wrong <laughs> or right, depending on your mood, you can kill the whole crew on this suicide mission if you so desire to. I've never done it, but I've watched it done on YouTube and it was hilarious. Um, <clears throat> but I have never played through, I've played through Mass Effect 2 like 10 times. Um, and I always get back my entire crew, including the people who get kidnapped. Nobody dies on my watch. I get everybody back. I even keep Jacob, which is, I think, honestly, my, my biggest failure in, <laughs> in Mass Effect 2. That I never let Jacob die in the vent. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> He's a cheating bastard. <laughs> I should have let him die. But, um, that being said, I've been working on it for two and a half years. And if I was posting that as I wrote, readers would hate me. Because they'll see me, like, posting, you know, 2K here on this story and then giving this story 15K. And there would be, like, wars in my comment section every single time I posted. Oh, yeah, And I would get would. messages like, I really wish you'd stop wasting your fucking time on that fucking Mass Effect thing. I don't even know what half that shit means. Why aren't you writing Harry Potter? I get that email every day. But it's not specifically about Mass Effect. But it always ends with, why aren't you writing Harry Potter? Why aren't you doing what I want Potter you to do? Why aren't you okay, doing what I wanted? <laughs> you should be doing what I want you to do, Kira. What I want you to yeah. do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it's giving us all mono. But, it, yeah. So, I, I, I find the idea of, girl, shut up. <laughs> no, I'm not. I, okay, let me tell you where I am. So, we are a week out from the Battle of the Five Armies, right? And Phileas, Flitwick, and Harry Potter are out on the desolation, setting up giant statues of Durin. And Hermione is concerned, rightly, that Thorin might get attached to the big statues, so she's asked them to make them basically indestructible so they don't get broken. And Harry can't figure out why everybody gives a fuck about Thorin Oakenshield's feelings. <laughs> oh, Harry. <laughs> Because he's still not over it. <laughs> he left his Ada at home in the Shire, tucked in his little small, smile, small, minded his own business. He comes back to Arda, and some asshole dwarf has taken his Ada on a quest to kill a dragon. <laughs> he's going to be mad for a while. <laughs> he's going to have feelings about this. A fucking talking dragon. <laughs> Yeah, and he's fucking it. <coughs> this big ass dragon. <laughs> this giant ass dragon. Bigger than a fucking plane. Anyways, that's where I am on Battle of the Five Armies. Gandalf has shown up. He did get a talking to. Got threatened. As one does. As one does. He didn't get drop kicked to Rohan. It was a near thing. <laughs> <clears throat> but, uh, yeah, I mean, so I'm, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Small Magic is a lot of fun. And I'm actually, because of what I'm writing on Rough Trade, it's, um, I have some, I, I have opened up Small Magic and I've been tweaking it and messing with it. What's going to happen is that Small Magic is going to be broken down into novellas because it is a beast. And, um, I, I, I just need to 
recalibrate, so to speak. Sometimes that's just what you got to do. I'd like to open it up and have some more POVs, and the only way you can do that, the only way I'm willing to do that, would be to split it up in the novellas. Um, because I already think it's, I think it's already burdened with POVs. Um, and having more would give me some more options. Like, I could actually write a couple of novellas on Earth. I could write Hermione's journey to Arda. I could write Ragnarok's invasion of Hogwarts to retrieve Lily. Um, which I think would be epic. Um, and, um, yeah, so just, there's lots of things I could do if I opened it up and, like, expanded the way it's constructed. No, it'd probably put me in sugar coma because I can't have Oreos anymore. We're not talking about it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, when you, when you have a big idea, like, like Small Magic is, it's a huge idea, um... Breaking it up in novellas opens you up to, it allows for um, multiple points of view, um, the exploration of relationships that you haven't got to explore. Um, there's actually a, a subplot in Small Magic I'm going to have to remove because I've OTP'd myself. Um, I was going to pair Roselle with Keely in Small Magic, but I can't do it. I, it's just not going to happen. It's, it's just, it's impossible. So that's an issue. Um, you've, you've you've messed with your own brain. I've OTP'd myself, and once you OTP yourself, you're done. You're just done. So now I gotta figure out who Roselle's asshole ex-husband was with these kids, and how Tyr feels about it, and where Tyr is, and how Tyr's gonna get to Arda. <sighs> Shit's real over here. It's it's difficult. I can't even read a fic where Tony Dinozo and John Shepard are having no. Number one, it violates my OTP because I will I will go down with McShep. I will go down on that ship. But also, Tony Dinozo's his brother. <laughs> yeah, I can't. I mean, I, I've, I there's some authors that I read who I know are very talented writers who have written Tony Dinozo, John Shepard. Um, that I just cannot, I can't do it. I can't do it. Now, I have read Tony Rodney, um, but it did feel a little like, why are you fucking your brother's soulmate kind of thing? Soulmate. <laughs> Get your hands off your brother's soulmate. What's wrong with you? That's not cricket. <laughs> um, so, you know, it, that, it's, it's a whole mood. But <laughs> if, if it was just, uh, you know, them, like, casual sex until... Uh, John comes along, uh, and Ronan, we'll just throw that out there. Y you know, I, fine, they can get laid. Um, everybody needs, everybody needs something sometimes. But then John's gonna have to, John and Tony have to deal with the stress of the fact that, you know, you, you were banging, you're banging Rodney. Man, what the hell? Well, he weren't even here yet. <laughs> That's not the point, dude. You should have known. You should have understand. There should, there should have been like some genetic instinct in you telling you that you were banging my soulmate john there's no such thing as soulmates my soulmate <laughs> what about the what about the bro code it's like i didn't know we were brothers what are you talking about you should have understood <laughs> there can't possibly be a bro code when i didn't even know we were related <clears throat> so yeah that's yeah that's a thing another thing that i've also realized recently is that i 
I mentioned it when I was doing those little shortened junks. I've got two more of those to publish, I think. So just to let you guys know, if you, but those of you who were with me when I did those shortened junk little shows, uh, thank you for hanging out with me when I did that. And also, I have two more to post. Um, but I was thinking about the structure of some of my bigger projects. And my bigger projects that I have pending right now are the Mass Effect project, which is almost done, um, the Unspeakable Plot, and Small Magic. Now, the Unspeakable Plot, one thing I realized that when I originally wrote it, I was writing a romance. And when I started the rewrite and I wanted to do the triad, I shifted into genfic. There's very little romantic element in the part that I rewrote. And I'm still, I was still labeling it a romance, but it's not. It's not a romance. And so I was trying to cram the relationship I wanted into what I'd already written and it wasn't working, but I was also adding these other elements that were simply just not romance at all. And so I'm, I like the idea of the three of them together. I like the idea of Draco coming back in time. I love his storyline with his mother and what's going on with that. Um, but I'm going to have to restructure the whole damn thing to make it work as a romance. Or I could split it up and have a mixture of novellas that are gen and some that are romance. But so sometimes you, you have a big idea and it moves on you in your brain and does something new that you're not expecting. You don't know what to do with it. So the unsinkable plot is just a hot mess, to be honest. It's a hot mess. Because I really love the work I did with Draco on the rewrite. I really love it. To the point where I'd rather delete Hermione than him. Oh. Hmm. That is a quandary, isn't it? Uh, well, I mean, I think I just had an epiphany. That was an interesting thing that just came out of your mouth, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's that's the stumbling block then, that I don't want to take Draco out of the rewrite. Okay. So it's like, <laughs> enablement right there is an example, if that's what you like. So, like, sometimes you have, there are many ways that it could be taken, right, that that Hermione gets removed from the pairing and it becomes about Harry and Draco. Um, I take out the elements of their romance because it's not really about their romance yet. Yeah, you could go that. That's definitely would be interesting. That would be interesting in something I haven't seen. Um, that'd be interesting. Because really, honestly, if you think about it, none of them are really ready for that. And I skipped over the trauma a little bit. So I could go back and kind of Pick that apart. That's interesting. That's appealing. And when you're working on an old project like that, finding a place where it's appealing is super important. To me, anyway. I have to find a reason to go back to a project I've essentially abandoned. Um, <laughs> Sam! <laughs> I'm not opposed to keeping it as a triad. I'm just saying if I had a choice between which character I'd delete, it wouldn't be Draco. Because I really find his relationship with his mother and his own travel back in time really compelling. When I think about my favorite scenes of the rewrite, they all feature Draco, which which should have been my clue. That's definitely an in interesting insight. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you were really clear when you did the replot and started the rewriting that you felt the minute you started rewriting that what you were missing from that story was Draco. Um, yeah. So, Yeah. I mean, you've got, that's interesting. That's the, 
you know, like I said, when you when you have a project you've abandoned, and I have essentially abandoned Unspeakable Plot, I got really frustrated with it because it wasn't doing what I wanted and it didn't have the tone that I wanted. Um, and I was trying to cram this romance into a situation that no longer fit. It didn't work. And I think that's the, if I took out the romance part, if I took out, okay, we have this potential, but we're not, we're not ready for this. We're not remotely ready for this. Um, Because realistically, none of them are. They wouldn't be. I mean, your story is a lot. Yeah. I mean, what's in the story is a lot. I mean, there's kind of like this intrigue kind of aspect, drama. um, Almost, there is almost like a political intrigue aspect as well, Mm -hmm. which is, um, I have plenty of things to explore without exploring them trying to navigate a relationship as an adult in in young bodies. True, true. I mean, they can be exploring getting to know one another, but getting to know one another doesn't necessarily have to mean getting into a relationship. You know, we need to know each other as we are now kind of thing. Um, And they've been through a huge trauma, especially Harry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, they all, they all three have trauma in different ways. Um... But her, Harry is the one that that lost a child, and that's a different, that that that's a different level. Um, yeah, that's so like. Yeah, I, I think. Yeah, I think so. I th- I think that um, just just removing the romance element completely would be well. It never wouldn't be a very interesting path for me to do because I've never done it on that on that scale. And since you're not genetic, constra- isn't something I do. Yeah, true. And since you're not constrained to a genre. That is, you're not constraining yourself rather to a genre that that is almost disallows the romance. Um, you're um, you you still can have like if you if you if it feels natural to the story, you can still have that romantic um, element at times. You can just have that slowly building in the background or have shades of it without actually full on going into we're about to get married and have kids. And well, I can always you know focus my. Um romantic energy so to speak on other pairings in the fit in the fic yeah um i've got zale um i've got sirius i've got thaddeus and his wife um this is is this the story where um i sometimes is it serious in that story who basically is like he'd never love again kind of situation no is that a different story there's one story of yours where you're, the character one of the main characters is in a relationship, um, kind of like a, a sort of like a sort of like a sort of like a fuck fuck buddies or friends with benefits that's, kind of thing. That's Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, Sirius was in love with James and Lily. Okay. And he doesn't intend to, um, and he was with that French guy, Cassius, um, but they separated because he wouldn't drink from the bloodstone, Cassius. And okay. when the when this when that when that season ends, he's banging Zell right because why not? <laughs> I mean, yeah. If you got that, if if you if that if if you got that opportunity, if he says it's not should... so much that it's that he don't, he'll never love again. It's just that he's not willing to live for hundreds of years with Cassius. He's gonna live his life and. He's not afraid of love. He he probably could even get married, but he's not going to extend his life. Okay. It's been it's been definitely been a long time since I've read yeah. Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond, so I couldn't. I know there's. I knew there was one story that had a plot line with Sirius. Um, there's a joke in Unspeakable Plot where Hermione says that he can't go on any dates until he gets th- therapy, which you know, duh. Fair. <laughs> you need all the therapy. <laughs> 
Hermione says you can't date until you get therapy. So there. <laughs> Just got to get some therapy. There is no character in Harry Potter that doesn't need therapy. I can't think of one. Uh, but even, even more so, honestly. Um, Luna. Luna's perfect. Yeah, Luna Luna is perfect. Um, even more so, I, there's nobody in... Um, oh, in, no, I uh, think Luna accepts her mother's death. I, I think she does. Um, I don't... There, There's never any indication that Luna is, um, like, lost in her grief. I think she accepted the death. She witnessed it, so hopefully she did get some mind healing or therapy or whatever they do in the magical world. Um, I think she probably needs therapy more for her father than she would her mother's death. And God knows Molly needs therapy. The garden gnomes don't need therapy. Sometimes, but in the case of Harry Potter, some of those characters need therapy for the sake of everyone else. Um, <laughs> yeah, definitely. In the case of 911... You're okay, but you're fucking this up. Right? But in the case of 911, those people all just need therapy for themselves. Like, all of them. I mean... There was where's that? There was a tweet. I don't know who this person was. I saw it. Um, I saw it because occasionally, I guess I, I guess I look at nine one one focused Twitter enough that occasionally Twitter sends me um, alerts um, about something nine one one related. Um, usually by somebody I've never heard of before. Um, and there was this tweet that said this person says. I don't know who this. I don't know who this person is. Says I'm canceling all my streaming subscriptions and switching exclusively to broadcast procedurals that have realized that have realized the only way to remain relevant is to be completely bonkers. The next tweet: Yes, I'm watching 911. And they said the first, <laughs> and then their final tweet: The first ten minutes of the pilot, and they're rescuing a baby who was flushed down the toilet. It's shocking, but this, it's shocking. Anything but this has won an Emmy in the last four years. Um. Which I don't know that I actually think that I I don't I'm not saying I don't want to you know get in a debate about whether or not nine one is any material because I actually don't personally think it is, but um, it's it is not light on angst or drama. So, uh, but it, you know overall, especially the first like three or four seasons were really good. So, you know, no complaints about on that front. But the, it is it is high intensity, high octane. So I just found that to be a very amusing take. Um, on One thing I'm surprised about that Oliver Stark hasn't gotten an offer to be in a B action movie. Maybe he right? has. <laughs> well, I mean, there was that. Why are we was... getting Oliver Stark action movies? Because we need there was them. that. There was that whole that was that whole article about it, the title of it was um, the B action movie you need to see this summer is an episode of Nine One One or something like that. Yeah, what the article yeah. was titled, and it was about you know just this. You know, they basically, well, they did. They they went to the set of, uh, I want to say the Titanic set, to do that, to do the whole thing, um, to film it. And so they, they kind of went all in on, on the filming. And it shows in that episode. Can you imagine how they pitched that script? Okay, <laughs> here's out. We're going to have a giant wave hit Santa Monica. Yeah, I know they have tiny little tsunamis all the time. We're talking... It's gonna wipe out the pier. It's gonna wipe. It's gonna cover up whole houses, like two floors, two, all the way up to the attic. It's gonna... And the actors are sitting there going. And actually, I saw an interview with the actors recently, and they were kind of going when they read that um, the script. They were all kind of going, "How are they gonna do that?" 
Fox just wiped out this animal like her peer for no reason. <laughs> oh, Willow found it. Willow found it. Thank you, Willow. And it is called 911 Tsunami Episode. It's the B-grade disaster epic you need to watch. Yeah, that's, that was the title. Yeah, Fox just wiped out the Santa Monica Pier for no Not for no reason. We got a lot of enjoyment out of it. <laughs> it's honestly one of my favorite episodes. Yeah, that arc. I think it's a three-episode arc. It's great. It's great. Um, and then we're going to brush over and not mention that this would have killed thousands of people. Yeah. People would have been okay, at the great. Beach. Oliver, you're going to be on the pier. <laughs> and Oliver's like, I'm going to be where? What? I mean, the pier that gets... With Gavin. No. <laughs> I have to think they probably said no the first time it got pitched. No. No, we're not putting the kid on the pier. <laughs> well, I did read... had to be such a discussion with their insurance company, though. Oh, yeah. Like how much they were going to allow him to be in the water and what that would look like. That's probably one of the reasons why they used the big set with the, with the you know, real big wave tank that was, like, professionally constructed and not just some fly-by-night thing. And they had professional divers on hand and stuff like that was because they did have Gavin out there. Um, but Gavin said, you know, in an interview that it was his favorite episode to film. Well, Which, he you had know, to play in the water and get pitched over somebody's shoulder. <laughs> It would have been my favorite episode, too. <laughs> but he but, did say that... He yeah, did say I am going to write a tsunami episode. Um, well, not episode, but a story. I'm pretty sure. For next year? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we have that natural disaster slash sentinel for July. I mean, natural disaster, it does lend itself to a tsunami. There could be... <laughs> it could be... It could be we might... You know, it might be the, 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 the sub... The, you know... The, the sub challenge that nobody nobody knows about, but we all suddenly notice is that we're all writing tsunami episodes. <laughs> tsunami fix. <laughs> There's like 15 tsunami fix happening at the same time. People are going, did we? Everybody's going, did we miss a memo? <laughs> Do I need to put a tsunami in my fix? I can. <laughs> Was this a tsunami challenge? How come no one told me? I would be butt hurt. I'm just putting that out there. If, if there was a tsunami challenge and nobody told me. <laughs> I, I would cry, Kira. I would cry. <laughs> well, just, yeah, it's a tsunami challenge. <laughs> there you go. You've been informed. I think that probably earthquake and tsunami, I think that they'll probably be the big ones for July next year. If people do natural disaster, I think they'll pick between tsunami, earthquake, or maybe, like, I don't know, a hurricane. Yeah. Um... Okay, Hale, I'm, wait I I'm here for it, and I'm waiting. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. I won't say it on the podcast, but I am 1,000% on board that train. Very much so. Bring it. One thing I think... I look that forward to your cover art. <laughs> when we saw the um, the promo images, before anybody knew what the, the, the episode was going to be about, um, when we saw the promo images for... Um, I want to say was it the fourth or fifth? Which which season started with the animals escape and the city? You know, five. Brands was that five? Was that four? Five. Like five okay, five. When we saw the promo images of that, like nobody knew what was going on. Why LA was in such disaster, right? Like nobody had any idea. And and the disaster level was a little weird. So it was it was a it was the blackout. Okay, but um. 
I my, my guess, based upon all the debris on the ground and, and the empty streets, was that they were going to do something like really extreme with the Santa Anas, which is an actual thing that L.A. has to deal with, as opposed to, you know, volcanoes in Austin, which is not a thing that they have to deal with. <laughs> Just putting that out there. Um, but I do think that's like a missed opportunity, like the dust storms and Santa Ana's and stuff like that, that element of the severe winds that can happen in L.A. and mm -hmm. and, and the surrounding area and the problems that it can cause. Um, one of the worst, uh, and I wouldn't want to use the, the actual event, obviously, in a, in a story because that's weird, but um, one of the worst car accidents in um uh, California's history was related to a dust storm um, that hit the I-5 unexpectedly and it caused like I want to say hundreds of cars were involved in that accident um, and that was on the major north-south freeway between you know Mexico and Canada um, so that was down down in the I, I want to say that was in the 90s I don't quite remember but they've never done anything about wind maybe wind is too complicated water okay wind complicated <laughs> it could be um so what's something about them uh, um, underutilizing the animals in the episode? I think that they have to be very careful about how they use animals, especially animals that are not normally seen as domesticated, because that is a um, PETA scandal waiting to happen, frankly. Yeah. Because um, they had to be very careful with the animals when they were on set. They probably had to have, like, each animal probably had several handlers, maybe more depending on the size and what it was. Um, they had to be very careful with insurance matters when it came to safety of the actors um, and the safety of the animals. Some of the animals are probably worth a great deal of money um, if they're trained for that kind of thing. Uh, I think they just have to be super careful with how animals are treated on shows and what is filmed to avoid being um, just to, to avoid extremely bad press. Um, so I honestly. If I was writing for that kind of show, I wouldn't have written an episode like that. Just to avoid that kind of backlash. Yeah. To use animals in distress as a drama point is kind of gross. Well, at least in this particular episode, they were just wandering around. Um, yeah. You know, they, Except for they, that they... emu, apparently, who trapped Bobby and Hen. <laughs> or whatever it was. Ostrich. I think it was... It, I, think, no, I think it was an uh, alpaca... Maybe an alpaca. Okay, alpaca. I just saw a preview online. A llama. I don't know. I just um, I I think it's a. I think it was. Uh, I th I think they did the most they could because what we do know about the show and about the production and about nine one one is they're not afraid to go whole hog on destroying Santa Monica Pier. So if they could have done more, they would have. <laughs> yeah. So the animals. I think they did exactly what they could get away with doing. Personally, yeah. what we saw of the animals was just them wandering around, except for that one alpaca, which was probably a trained alpaca um, of some sort. I mean, there are some, there are some, you know, certainly alpacas. I mean, I got to hug an alpaca downtown one day. It was just we walked out of the restaurant, and there it was. Like, oh, an alpaca, not something you see. Oh no, it was a llama. Because that's, that's actually his name. It's the very last time I went to a circus, I got to meet an elephant. I don't like to, my I, I first, don't appreciate circuses, but I got my to My first before. thought was not to hug it, but we went over to ask the guy, why do you have a llama in the middle of the street? And apparently he's an emotional support llama. He actually is in a that. reservoir. 
He actually is a, a registered emotional support animal, and he had just come from a senior center that day. That is amazing. I love it. He has a, he has a, he has a Facebook page and everything. The, the llama. His is, name is, is his great. name is Cesar the No Drama Llama. You can look him up. So, no, I was not. My first instinct was not to hug him. But he said, you can hug him <laughs> if you want. And I said, he's very chill. He's a very chill llama. And I was like, well, when am I ever going to get another chance to hug a llama? I might as well hug a llama. So, so Barnum and Bailey, is that what it's called? Came to town about 15 years ago. And my uncle had a bunch of tickets, and he gave me some. And I was like, I don't, I don't really want to go see a circus. But I went, because I was bored. Um, and my tickets came with an opportunity to sit on an elephant. And I was not going to sit on this elephant. Um, for several reasons. One, I don't, think you could, I don't think you should sit on an elephant. Two, I just don't think you should sit on an elephant. <laughs> it just seems so degrading to have these people line up to sit on this creature but i got in line anyway because i wanted to meet her um and the guy was like well if you get up here i'll help you get up. i said no, no i don't want to get on her and he's like what i said i don't want to sit on her that's that's rude she's i just want to i just want to meet her and he looked at me like i was a unicorn <laughs> he said honey of course you can meet her <laughs> and he took me around and i got to feed her um and uh, i got to pet her and she wrapped her trunk around my shoulders and hugged me. Aww. And then it, and and then I left because I I kind of got teary. <laughs> but I didn't want to sit on her. I don't know why everybody did. I don't know why everybody wanted to sit on her. It just it seems so awful. It seems so awful that all these people were just climbing all over her like she was a circus ride, and they were paying fifteen dollars a person to do it. But he was really stunned that I didn't want to sit on her. That I just wanted to meet her. One of the most charming things I've ever seen on YouTube is there's this elephant sanctuary in Tennessee where they rescue circus elephants. And there was this elephant that had been there for decades. And they were getting a new elephant, so they were trying to get her used to being on this elephant sanctuary farm situation. And the older elephant saw her and came running because she remembered her. They were once in the same circus. And it was the most charming thing I've ever seen. They just could not keep from touching each other and, like, hugging each other like elephants do and painting each other's faces because they were so excited to see each other. It had been decades since they'd seen each other. That is so sweet. And I'm sorry, but if you want to sit on one of those, you're, you're an asshole if you want to sit on an elephant. And I understand they're used as beasts of burden in other, in other parts of the world. I understand that. I just, I don't agree with it. I really don't. Anyways. <laughs> I won't get off my soapbox. I didn't mean to get on one. I want to meet the llama and pet the. I want to hug the llama. A lady holder immediately found his 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 Facebook page, <laughs> but he's very sweet. But yeah, he's he's an emotional support llama, and um, he's got a very chill disposition. Which you'd have to have a very chill disposition if you're, you know, being around um, kids yeah. and elderly people and stuff, and getting hugged all the day. And apparently, um, I he was in the news. Um, for uh he was taken to the scenes of several uh protests and stuff in portland and you know without getting into it y'all remember how uh, the protests in portland were in the news for a long time and uh the the handler for the llama took him to the protests to help diffuse tensions and stuff and try to help people um during the protests so there's a lot of pictures in those news articles of people hugging the llama <laughs> during the protests 
Anyway, so yeah, we were just walking out. I definitely out of, want to hug the llama. We were walking just out of a restaurant Just be careful, guys, day. that you don't hug the wrong llama. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, and always make sure it's okay first. But we were just walking out of a restaurant, and, and my sister goes, is that a llama? And I thought she was crazy, because I was like, there's not any llamas in Portland. I mean, actually, <laughs> it's... It's Portland. There probably are lots of llamas in Portland, but <laughs> there probably are lots of there's probably lots of alpacas too. <laughs> but yeah, when the handler said you guys can hug him if you want, or like, what am I ever gonna get that opportunity? I will hug him. <laughs> this is the chance of a lifetime. I can tell everybody I hugged a llama. But yeah, I mean, I just I would hug an elephant too. I yeah, she was charming. She she didn't smell great, but she was charming. Um, I just, I didn't, I didn't, I just didn't understand why anybody would want to sit on her. That's like asking, I, honestly, it was like trying to ask somebody if you could sit on a person. Because she was so, vi- she was so vivid and there was so much. Sometimes I look at my dog's eyes and he is very smart. He's very alert. He's very, um, he's a vocabulary of about a thousand words. Now he doesn't say them. He's a husky, so he does talk, but not, not like that. But he's about as smart as a five-year-old. Dogs are. Most dogs. Some are a little less smart but that's not their fault they're so cute um he's very smart and he's very intuitive and there's a lot of soul there and i think that's why we probably domesticated dogs and cats because we see a reflection of ourselves in them that that spirit you know and when i looked that that elephant was just it was like looking at a person in the eye and i just i can't i don't know why anybody would want to sit on her i just don't understand I wouldn't want to sit on a horse either for the same reason. They seem like, I don't know. It just seems like it's an insult to, to sit and expect an animal to carry you around like that. And I get it. There are people like depend on beasts of burden to live their lives. I'm not saying anything negative about them. Just for me personally, I find it very difficult, the idea of using an animal, burdening an animal with my burdens makes me uncomfortable and yes i'm a meat eater i i I get the hypocrisy i'm currently wearing a cow jumper hoodie living my best holstein life but yes i would eat steak tomorrow (laughs) i I can't explain myself maybe it boils down to respect i do respect the animals even the ones that i eat i try very hard to only buy ethically sourced meat as a result yeah, I, I didn't get a bag. There was a bag? I didn't get a bag. It's not real. It's 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 fake. It's not even real wool. It's fake shirling. Yeah. It's not real. I wouldn't wear fur either. But I didn't get a bag. I'm really mad. Is it like a bag to put the hoodie in? That is that is Kira's cow hoodie. Yeah. But my my hoodie actually has a zipper down the front because I get hot flashes. So I need to I need to be able to come out of it quick. I couldn't have something I wore over my head like that that I couldn't get out of. I would, I would, be, I would, that, that is the road to spontaneous human combustion. Seriously. And I'm pretty sure that the real road to spontaneous human combustion is a hot flash plus a sneeze. Oh, it becomes that bag. I see. Oh, you tuck it in, you tuck it into the little kangaroo pouch? Yeah, I see. That definitely requires the pullover aspect. Yeah, it would. Okay. I'm not mad anymore. I don't really like for pullover hoodies. I like, my, I like my hoodies to zip. Right, because you need to be able to get out of it quick. 
when I want. Because you can be fine one second, and ten seconds later, you are on fire. Also, it being pullover starts to feel like a shirt, and then I'm inclined to not wear anything underneath it, and then I'm in just a bra, and then I'm in just, then I'm stuck. Then you're super stuck. I had to argue with myself the other day to not leave my house in my cow hoodie because I had to go pick up groceries and I thought to myself, I need to put my coat on. I thought, well, I'm wearing my hoodie. I can just wear my hoodie. You cannot wear this cow hoodie out of the house. I had to give myself a severe <laughs> lecture for it. You were thinking I about wearing the cow hoodie out of the house? I, I'm Southern. I don't actually care. I'm 47 years old. I will like care. I'm impressed at the public's here uh, pickup line. That, that is not the point. I will care on your behalf. <laughs> I'm just saying. No, it my cow my cow hoodie goes all the way to mid thigh. I mean, it is like it is it is basically a blanket with a zipper. Just saying. But yeah, I almost wore it to pick up Publix. But I didn't. I took it off and put my red wool coat on because I'm not a heathen. Pretended like you was a grown-up. Yeah. But I was still wearing my pajama pants. As one does. Well, they're basically just stretchy jogging pants anyway. What are basically stretchy joggy pants? My pajama pants. My pajamas. It was like a t-shirt and sweatpants. Which is why I wore pajamas that day. What's the point of a crop top hoodie? I, I know. I've seen... You know, you know what makes less sense than a crop top hoodie? A crop top rain jacket. And I saw one the other day, and I just was kind of. Did it have staring. a hood? Was it just to cover their hair? It it did have a hood. Yes, a very minimalist hood. But I was like, but you, you mean maybe your hair's dry, but your booty's gonna be soaked. I mean, I guess if all you care about is your hair. People have their There's priorities. this girl I watch on YouTube Shorts. She does she has these short videos. I, I imagine they're they're, impl- they're transfers from TikTok. And she was trying on this basically this, this little metal shiny bra thing, and she kept trying these little jackets to go over it. Um, and she had this tiny little skirt on, and this little metal bra thing that was all sparkly webbed stuff. And she'd put in a nude bra underneath it so it would you know not show her nipples, and. She kept taking the jacket off and putting it back on, trying different ones. And then she just said, fuck it. Hoes don't get cold. <laughs> well. <laughs> I laughed until I cried. She's currently mourning her 27th birthday like her life is over. But that's okay because she's adorable. <laughs> but hoes don't get cold. Then she proceeded to put on a pair of tiny sandals and take her ass outside to go somewhere. Basically wearing nothing. I hope it really wasn't cold where she was, or she froze her little ass off. <laughs> Does anybody have any questions about um, subplots and um, threads and how to work them into your narrative without being a shark face to your reader? See, I almost said cock tease. Same difference. Yeah, it is the same difference. In this context. question, though. Do you suppose that a jack hole is worse than a jackass? Uh, is the hole worse than the butt? Is the question. Um, I would have to say probably yes. I think jack hole is actually like a euphemism for cum dump, personally. Do I even want to know? <laughs> I mean, I, 
I'm literally asking myself if I actually want to know. The first time I ever heard the phrase jackhole, my husband was calling somebody a jackhole in traffic. And I was like, where the fuck did you get that from? Are you making up words this now? Become, it's become part of my vocabulary, and I don't know how I should treat it. Like, is it worse or better to call somebody a jackhole over a jackass? And I'm thinking that jackhole's worse. As in, it's a hole you jerk off into. I, it, it feels it feels more, I guess, dehumanizing, maybe? <laughs> it's just, it's awful, right? I mean, when you start not dissecting what it could possibly mean, it's like, on the surface, it's like, what'd you say? But really, it's like, what the fuck did you say? <laughs> There's definitely a what did you say kind of moment, yeah. I mean, I've heard the expression before, but I also didn't put a lot of thought into it, you know, because reasons. Um, Except I really, I, I, I get why it would be a publicly acceptable euphemism for jackass, except not really if you think about what it means. No, I wouldn't call it a euphemism for jackass. That doesn't, well, at least not to me. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't personally go there. Um, I would assume it meant something different. If I, was, if I wanted to avoid calling somebody a jackass in public and I didn't want to be rude, I'd call them an a-hole. <laughs> Not a jackhole. <laughs> because I tried to seem so much worse. I'm just trying to figure out what public situation I'm in that I can't say jackass. Right? Because I don't believe in censoring myself for other people. Not to that. I mean, I, there, there are situations, I mean, even in front of kids, I'd probably say jackass. I wouldn't say fuck in front of most children, but I would probably wouldn't hesitate to say jackass just because I don't think it's all that adult. It would depend on the circumstances. Like, if I broke my foot in public, I would say fuck. <laughs> I don't care who's watching Well, who's yeah, I mean, that's different, <laughs> but, you know, but just... just it like, would probably be my only word for several minutes. <laughs> fuck, 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 fuck. Because that shit hurts. I've done it. I know. I'm, I speak from experience. Did anybody wind up having a question about uh, plot threads? When to pull? When to not? She doesn't want to discuss Jack Hole anymore. <laughs> Unless we're talking about Jack's Hole. <laughs> which is completely oh, which is completely banned on of, some sites. On some sites. I did get an email about making Jack the Bottom in my story. Oh, the reader would have appreciated a hand, a heads up before reading. Oh, would they? To which I responded, don't ever read my work again, because I am never, ever, ever, ever going to warn you and tell you which one of my characters is taking it up the ass. Just assume, on a general basis, that every character in my fic has and will take it up the ass. And yeah. save yourself the trouble. That is flat out on my site somewhere. That you might as well just including the that, women. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely the women. You might as well just assume that everybody. Every is asshole is available for fucking on my web. That's <laughs> the only the only story that doesn't apply to, and it's one where they have a very specific discussion around it is um, De Novo, because yeah. uh, it's it was just something I had different I was trying because I wanted to explore the idea of a character who just isn't isn't wanting to have anal sex, uh, isn't want to be on the receiving end. So I just was exploring something a little different characterization wise. Um, but it's not, uh, it's not deep, right? It's just a thing. It's just a thing. I, I was just like, I just stared at it. I could bitch, I don't have time for you. Why? I don't. 
there isn't a single fic on my site where I think that I've ever used like bottom slash character name. And if no. I did, because I was told I had to, and I haven't removed it because I didn't realize it was still there. Because I just don't do that. But there was a time when I used to warn for Slash because I was told I, I was required to, apparently. I learned better. Yeah, the whole warning for Slash and having... And the, the thing is, it is notorious, the whole Jack is on bottom thing. So when you brought up Jack Hole, I was like, well, I don't know. Are we talking about Jack's Hole or are we talking about... <laughs> um, but it okay, is notorious so in... Fa- okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just say it's notorious in fandom the whole um, requirement that you warn if warn if Jack's on bottom, not if the because the other side of the popular side of that pairing is Daniel Jack Daniel. No warning if Daniel's on the bottom. Just warn us. If, it was actually in the site warning list. <laughs> Mandatory. Maybe you shouldn't give me sol- um, sol- suggestions like that. That is hilarious. Oh, yeah, there was that one site where the mandatory warning for Jack, and you could get in trouble and not have your stories listed if you didn't do it. Yeah, if you didn't warn for, and it was in, and it, I say this, it was in the, it wasn't a tag, it was a list of warnings, and one of them was bottom Jack. Like there was something warnable about that. So not only did I make Jack O'Neill the bottom in my fic, I made him an exclusive bottom. <laughs> How dare you! Because fuck that noise. I don't understand. And frankly, oh, I do. You assholes, like, well, they think it's because it's feminizing, right? But if you never had anything of substance in your ass, you would know that is a job. I think it actually, I think that there's there's some sort of like, people don't realize that this basically is sort of homophobia at work. Is that it's also, I think, internalized misogyny. Yeah, people are, are, are it in their heads deciding which character is the woman in a in a gay pairing there's hint mm-hmm. there's no woman in a gay pairing um they're deciding which character is a woman so they can normalize it to they're making doing some sort of a heteronormative thing in their brains um so that they can get through so that they can read this so they've decided that you know in the case of jack daniel that jack that uh, um daniel's the woman in that situation and so they need to be warned if someone is taking warned if someone is going down a different path. And it's it's the word warning that really gets to me in that, right? It like wasn't warned for murder. It wasn't it wasn't people, it wasn't offered as a content tag. It was offered as a on a mandatory warning list. It's very offensive. Super offensive. Good night, Rogue. Okay. I put that tag on my site. It, it used to say go fuck yourself. Um, and then I thought, well, I'll just be kind. So I put life is but a dream. And I've had two different people ask me what that came from. And I didn't tell them. Because, <sighs> dude, Google that shit. My sadness I'm knows your... no bounds. The fuck you say? Exactly. The fuck you say. The fuck you say. <laughs> I can hear it. Okay, okay so he- the, qu- the question is... Yeah. Where, what do you do, or would you do, if what you thought was a thread turned out to be a big-ass boulder when you look at it in retrospect? So, the question is, is this a work in progress that you're posting as you go, or is this something that you are, you know, writing and you realize you your plot is derailed and you don't know what to do? Um, because I have two different answers. That's almost the same thing. Well, the first step, the first step about the boulder thing is if you realize it, so you're, you're, you didn't post it. It's not a work in progress. Okay. 
Um, well, it is a work in progress, but it's not something you've posted. Um, that does make it easier because at least you don't have to deal with like retraction. But the first question is, do you want the boulder? You know, do you want that in your story? And that really matters because if you don't want to deal with it, as painful as it is, sometimes you have to back something out. Now, authors hate this. They really, really, really hate this. I've done, I've had to do it. I've had to go in and take whole um, plot lines out because they just didn't serve the story. They were a distraction. They were wrecking the pace. They were a subplot I wasn't prepared to follow through on. And sometimes that is a valid choice. It's a subplot I'm not prepared to follow through on because you know it's going to add 20,000 words to a 40,000 word story. And that wasn't what you signed up for with this project. Um, and that's a perfectly reasonable answer. So first question you have to ask yourself, do you want to deal with this, where this plot is going to take you? If the answer is no, you got to take it out or strip it down, find some other way to get your external conflict in something you got, but you got to, you got to take out what you're not prepared to deal with. Um, if the answer is yes. You have to be careful with that. You have to be yes. careful with that. What I would say is you have to ask yourself a secondary question to that is that if your story is unfinished, can you ignore this boulder until you finish? If so, I recommend it. And then do the fixing in your second draft. If you cannot ignore it, you need to go back, edit it out, and then continue writing. But if you could finish the story and ignore the boulder to the end, stop referencing it at all so you don't have to do edits on the very end of your story too, do that. Set it aside for a couple of weeks, pick it up, do your edit on a second draft to see if it really is a big boulder and what you can do to mitigate it or remove it on a, on a second draft. That that gives you some room to breathe, personally. Yeah. I mean, if, if I can wait to, to do any kind of big edit, which taking something out is an edit, but sometimes it's the emotional decision is the hard part for me. It's the decision to remove content. Um, mm -hmm. and that can be kind of like, oh my God, it's just, I feel like, you know, somebody just punched me in the face. Um, cause the decision can be very difficult. It can be just, it can feel like it's like soul crushing to take out words, but you'll find that you feel better once you've made that decision or once you've just say decided to scale back, whether it's a plot line or whatever it is that you're doing that is unwieldy. Um, it's also easier to edit words out if you're working with a second document. So make a copy of the original document, label it your second draft, and then put the other document away. That gives you a lot of freedom because you're not losing words because you, you have a backup copy of that. So if you don't like your changes, you can go back to the original and try again. But if you want to keep the boulder, well, Jillian. <laughs> um. Keeping the boulder is, um, then you got to stop and think about your, I would, first thing I would stop and consider my structure. Um, is this following through on this going to make my novella an epic? Is it going to, do I need to restructure? Because you got to sit down and replot. Uh, if you're going to keep it, you got to, either way, you're kind of doing some replotting, taking it out of replotting, keeping it in the the ripples of this giant boulder involves replotting because how do you scale down the impact of it um, so that you can pull a gentler or a softer thread 
rather than this big, huge thing. Um, versus uh, just writing it all at once. Because sometimes you can do that. Sometimes you can soften a plot line um, or make it minimize it and give it out to your readers in pieces rather than give it to them all at once. And so you go, okay, I'm going to deal with this part of it in this first novella. And then the second novella, I'm going to pull the thread a little bit more and deal with it some more. But that requires really sitting down and working with your plot and figuring out what's going to work to, to keep this giant ass thing intact. Um, like the time travel, good that time travel thing. Oh, dude, dude. All she had to do was make him time travel at the end to save the day. And it would have been okay. It's a really, but but the thing is that is a that is a plot complication that she probably didn't want to write. But it's you also know. a red herring, right? That 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 is literally a red herring. Sometimes in fandom, you throw a boulder at canon, and then look at the ripples and see where it takes you. One of the more interesting stories I ever read in Harry Potter, not Harry Potter, in The Hobbit, was when Bilbo found the ring. He showed it to the company. And they recognized it. They knew exactly what it was. And they decided, fuck it. We're going to Mordor. Mordor. So they went to Mordor. And they got rid of the ring. And they got a flying ship. Because they went to Mordor. And then there was the dragon got out and tried to kill him. And it was great. It was fantastic. But she threw this giant boulder in the middle of Hobbit Cannon. And then it's like, fuck it. We're going to Mordor. And it was such a small little change. I'm going to show Thor in the ring. And you wouldn't have realized how impactful showing... Someone's going to find it for you. Until, yeah, you wouldn't realize how impactful that is until you are going past it and you're going, well, wait, I think there probably be some ramifications to the, you know, isn't it, what does it say about the, that Thorin, that he is willing to sacrifice all of Middle-earth to get Erebor back? Um... You know, because what if they do nothing? So, you know... Well, I think if if he wasn't going to do anything, the, the Bechtos would have been him not to recognize it. In canon, Gandalf doesn't recognize it immediately. He has to go off and study for decades before he comes back to the Shire to get it. Right. The story is called That, was, that Wasn't Part of the Plan by Mad Fairy. But if she had written it... Great let's story. say, using it as an illustration, if she had written it where they did recognize and go, oh, we'll deal with it later, we're going to go ahead and go to um, the mountain... All those elements intact. So it's a small change. Here's the ring. First ripple. Keeping that first ripple intact, they recognize it. And then she she changes her plan. She, what she does instead is she has them decide to go ahead and go to Erebor. The story would feel oddly weird. And let's say she never, ever dealt with the ring. Wouldn't you feel like that was weird? Yeah. When I'm writing a time travel story where Bella and Thorin have traveled back in time. Um, and the only reason they're going to Erebor with the ring is because they can destroy the ring in Erebor. Because if they couldn't, they would have taken it to Mordor. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I've, read a, I've, read so, a, I've read a couple of stories right. where they um, use... I think there was one where uh, they need they need the dragon fire to, is, is the other alternative to... Um, um, uh, they need dragon fire to destroy the ring and the, so Smog destroys the ring um, and there's another one where it's in re I read there was a reinterpretation and I I can't remember much about it beyond this it was a reinterpretation of the how, how the ring is destroyed that it's not just Mount Doom it's any 
lava will destroy the ring, and that there is a lava mm -hmm. flow under Erebor. So, um, I have I have two options in my plot. One is the Arkenstone, and one is a, a lava flow, because it makes sense that there might be one under Erebor. Yeah, it's a yeah. solitary mountain by itself. It does kind of lean itself towards volcano. Yeah. I agree. So I mean that makes a lot of sense. Um, but when you if you when you put these kinds of ripples out into into the void, and then you don't follow the ripples, the reader's brain is following the ripples that you have introduced. Now, Mad Fairy did follow those ripples in a very fun and entertaining way, um, but not every author does. They just throw this stuff out there and then you're expected to believe that there's no consequences to this drastic change in canon or this drastic change to events. And it, it, it comes across as disingenuous at best. It's like, well, wouldn't they have felt like they needed to do something about that? Well, aren't they prioritizing all of, you know, getting back Erebor over like every, you know, potentially millions of living beings? The readers are going to think about those things. And it's a distraction. And that's the last thing mm -hmm. you want in your story is for people to be distracted from the story thinking about the things that you didn't explore. Now, people, there's always there's always going to be some element of things people are distracted by wishing you'd explored. You know, oh, I wish that you had um, explored what relationship Neville got in into. Um, what happened to Neville in uh, uh, that old black magic? I mean... Who did he ultimately wind up with, Kira? I mean, people will go down those paths um, for whatever bizarre reason. Can you're like, um, Neville's not going to turn out the same in in those in uh, in that story because of the time travel element. Um, and why would anybody think he would? But also, he's not really the main character in that story. So why would you look be in in that old black magic? Neville's getting fucking therapy. That's what he's getting. He's getting mind healing. <laughs> Um, but people go down those What's paths. What's more porridge? Right? Oatmeal, bravery, and stamina. <laughs> well, if it's war porridge, it's got to be cranberries, too, because actually, <laughs> probably prunes. I think war porridge definitely is. You, I always think of, um... That I episode. think everybody, every man's war porridge is, is individual. Probably true, but I, I always more think... comments about war porridge, war porridge. than I do anything else on that in that whole story. And that kid has like what four lines? Yeah, but I um, I whenever I th whenever I think about war porridge, I think of um. Do you remember that episode of Star Trek: The Next Generation, where they were trying to find a drink that Worf thought was a warrior drink, and the one that they found that he um was prune juice. He's like, oh, this is a war <laughs> this is a warrior's beverage, and that's why the first time I heard warrior, <laughs> I heard um, a war porridge. My first thought was, oh, it's got prunes in it. <laughs> okay, it definitely has prunes in it then. Oatmeal and prunes, and butter. And definitely sugar. butter, <laughs> definitely butter. So it's also good for your regularity. <laughs> <laughs> no eggs. What are you talking about? You don't put eggs in eggs. No. <laughs> what kind of porridge have you been eating? And how can we remedy this? Whatever's happening in your life over there? Really? Because I've had congee. Is it congee? I had congee with eggs, but not oatmeal with eggs. Is it congee? Am I saying that right? I think so. Well, no. Gruel is oats and water, right? I thought porridge and oatmeal were like, like porridge is like oats and milk. I like to make oats with um, with milk, and 
with uh, cinnamon and nutmeg. But I thought gruel was made with water and like porridge was made with milk. Grits is corn based. We're getting yeah. way off topic. <laughs> uh, that's definitely grits. But so for oh, your... oh, yeah, well, uh, eggs in it is called gruel. That's interesting because shouldn't that be called like I don't know better because it's got eggs. <laughs> oats and see oats and eggs. I'm really struggling with. I I don't know why, but is it like a fried egg on top, like it would be with like congee or? I'm not, I'm not saying that right. I don't think. Um, or is it more like, like mixed into the oats, like as an ingredient versus a topping? Oh, okay. So it, it would be, it would make it rich and it would make it high in protein. So, congee. So you were saying it right. Um, okay. I like that. By the way, I had some the other day. I ended up at a food truck place because I was waiting to get my groceries and they were late. So I thought I'll, I'll go get me something to eat and I went to a food truck and there weren't a lot of options and um like for breakfast that I really wanted to eat because <laughs> it was like that's a lot I, don't, I can't handle any grease right now you know um and so the lady asked me and I said you know um I uh I have diabetes and I can't really eat a lot of grease first thing in the morning and she said I'll fix you up so she made me congee and I really enjoyed it. It was just the kanji soap. But she she offered me bacon and eggs to go on top, and I said no, just just the stuff. And I got it, and it was delicious. I loved it. it sounds great. Um, yeah, I think more porridge. She said, I used. She said I used fake sugar for you, but it should be made with real sugar. I said <laughs> okay, thank you. We pre- I appreciate but your I really sacrifice. Um, I agree that war porridge would be made with you know in my head with steel cut oats. Mm, absolutely. I think this is a thing. You know. I don't and, actually eat any other kind of oat but still cut oats. I don't I don't either. You can't go to war with rolled oats. I mean that's just that's just I not don't on. Think so either. That's that's gonna digest too quickly. It's gonna hit your bloodstream. Like all that all those carbs are gonna be like they're gonna be like a sugar bomb. You're gonna burn all that you energy know. up so quick. It's just like it's yeah, you're just not, not good. You're not gonna have any, any stamina for the catapults. I agree. That is no way to feel this siege engine <laughs> right we have uh, we built a whole cannon here about war porridge but um and the garden gnome rebellion the garden gnome which rebellion. i have gotten grief about not actually including the garden gnome rebellion the actual rebellion Who's people were pe- like we didn't get the rebellion like are you fucking serious it's not and the funny thing is it's it, I never took that as all that serious because if it was a it only happens once a year which means they can't be very serious about it. <laughs> it is just an opportunity for them to throw things at the dwarfs because the dwarfs throw them. <laughs> so it's like there. a fun day. <laughs> That's the way I read it. So what is there to write? <laughs> but yeah, when it when it when it comes to the big boulder in your plot, um, to answer that one question, so we can we can at least end yeah. the recording. Um, when it comes to the big boulder in your plot, if you've got, you have to make an immediate choice. If you recognize that you've put something bigger than you can deal with, or bigger than you plotted into your story, is the first choice decision you have to make is: Do I want to deal with this? Um, if you do want to deal with it, whether whether you deal with it then or later. Um, I'm sorry, don't want to deal with it, whether that's then or later. Just, you got to stop and replot. 
make the painful decision to take it out and move on with your life. Maybe you can use that in another story. Maybe you can put that into a side story. I don't know. But something um, to help. Whatever helps get you through. Because I've had that happen. I've done pulled world building or ideas out of a story and wound up putting them in completely different stories. That where it was better served and fit better. And I would have been ruined if I had left it in that place where it didn't belong. But if you decide to leave it in, that sometimes can be harder when you've got this enormous thing. Because you really need to stop and think about your structure and what kind of story you want to tell and how to deal and with your ripples and your ripples, how to deal with this big old thing you've put in your story and how to not have it be um, this obtrusive thing, how to deal with it effectively. So it's, it's a big old problem. N- not you it. can't leave that heifer in LA plotting Buck's murder. No, or to kidnap him. You know, I'm, I'm whether it's kidnapping or murder, it's got to do something. I mean, even if Athena just sends him a text and says, hey, are you okay? Because I had to arrest this heifer. We found all these pictures, and pictures. it wasn't good. Yeah, I'm fine. I mean, that at least <laughs> would have been... A, that would at least been... Lucy, I didn't even think she liked me, you know? But, I mean, that at least would have been a graceful <laughs> exit, you know? Um, also, by the way, y'all, if there is a story out there where Lucy um, is plotting to either kidnap or kill Buck... I promise you I have not seen it. I don't know about it. I was just I, using it. I have not read in that fandom since before Lucy appeared on the scene. <laughs> yeah. I only read from people I, write I know it, pretty much. I don't read it. Yeah. The kerfuffle kind of wrecked the reading for me. Um, but it, it can be hard to, to keep a storyline in that's bigger than you intended. And sometimes it's perfectly okay, even if you like the storyline, to go you know what? I just don't want to deal with it. It's more story than I want to deal with writing right now. And that is fair. I think some writers sometimes will feel like that they're, I don't know, copping out or wimping out or something by not writing the big complicated idea. But I'd rather read a really well-crafted, well-executed, complete short story that is just on point than somebody who, you know, kind of lost their way on 150K and kind of Never quite got Dragged there. Dragged ass over 175 and still didn't finish? Yeah. Yes. I'm not bitter. One more question. Any advice for identifying boulders versus threads for pantsers mid-riding? They often look the same in the moment. In the moment, yes. Um, but if you're not a work-in-progress writer, if you... if, you, if you, Well, we're all work-in-progress writers. But if you're not someone who posts as you write, and you have time to look at your finished product after the fact... Um, I think if you give yourself some space on it, like two or three weeks, and you come back to it to do a second draft, or at least to do a read-through to see if you're looking at inconsistencies or, you know, fuck-ups or, you know, giving a character two different names and not even noticing even after you publish it. I'm not bitter. Um, <clears throat> who cares? Glau. Glau, okay? His name is Glau. Anyways, um, it, you... You're going to see it. It's going to stand out to you. That's why, that's why we're calling it a boulder. Um, readers are going to pick up threads and wish you'd continued them, even if you don't. It could be the tiniest little thing that you don't address, and they're going to harp on it for the next decade. That's just what readers do. I speak from experience. And yes, I did edit that line in the first episode of Sentinels of Atlantis five years ago, and you just read it today and realized I did it. 
deal with it. Um, <clears throat> I'm not bitter about that either. It was one sentence. Why does everybody keep mentioning it? I've gotten three mentions this year about that one sentence I edited in that novella that was published a decade ago. You're like, just get over and the change, it. And the change is five years old. You just now noticing? Okay. It still happened five years ago. Um, you're going to notice it. It's going to stand out if you give yourself some room to look at it. Because it's going to be a bolt. It's, it's going to be unresolved, number one. And if it's more interesting than whatever else you've got going on around it, it's going to stand out even more. And that's why your readers are going to latch on to it, personally. But and that's something you have for to be prepared. me, I find my boulders when I give myself room to look for them. Yeah, that's one of the things you have to be prepared to be honest with yourself about, though, is is the story, um, is this subplot this, or this thing you threw in this world-building element or this plot device or whatever more interesting, um, more captivating than your main plot? And some people don't want to actually be honest about that they want to um it can it can be hard to take that kind of you know critical eye to your own work especially if you really like an idea um but the and you gotta rem remind yourself that it's the idea isn't bad it just maybe isn't for this story it doesn't mean you've screwed up it doesn't mean that what your idea was was flawed or wrong or whatever it just means it wasn't for this story and that's okay. You know, just just give yourself some grace and let yourself have that permission to 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 I'm saying to not be perfect. To 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 take something out or to look at your work and go, yeah, this could be better if I take this element out. Um the hard one of the hardest things I ever have to do um when I was prof editing professionally would be to tell an author when I thought that a scene needed to come out a wholesale, a whole scene. And it happened occasionally. It'd be like, um, not often, but it is something that occasionally and it's part of my job to tell them. And this is very different. One of the differences between, you know, professional pro publishing and fan fiction is your editor is going to tell you about yourself if they see that kind of thing. And, and one of the reasons why it was my least favorite part is because unlike a correction or a suggested edit or something like that, this is suggesting to an author that their story is not served by an entire scene that they wrote. Um, and that's a difficult message to send to somebody and say, you know, clearly you like this, but I don't think the story is served by it. So I think that you should consider removing it. And it is painful for any author to have to be in that situation, and whether it's a scene or it's a plot device or it's a a, a world-building element. Um, taking something out doesn't mean that you failed. But leaving it in could wind up being a big problem. It could be more of a failure than taking it out because it could dramatically and negatively impact the story you told. And nobody wants that. Okay. Follow-up response. When I finish, they're easier to see. I'm hoping you have some ideas for while you're still writing the first draft. I often get two or three chapters in and then realize the thread is a boulder that invalidates the whole concept but can't be removed. Okay, I don't think anything is concrete when it comes to writing. It can be removed. You just don't want to remove it. So you need to think about your concept 
and reevaluate your concept because maybe the boulder is more important than the original concept you were working with and you don't need to change the boulder you need to change your concept or you need to change the approach of your concept because sometimes a boulder like that if it's invalidating the rest of your world building or your concept or your theme or it it's your brain telling you that you've got a problem that you're not recognizing and you need to do some analyzing and figure out what the problem is. Yeah. Lisa, that's what I experienced. Most of the time. Do you remember that one story that you and I tried to plot? Um, I think it was for me, oh. but it might have been for oh, you. God. And we went down, like we did it complicated, the most complicated permutations. It had something you to guys, do. It, 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 <laughs> did, it was, did we record that? Because no. It would be epic if they could listen to it. I don't actually, I don't, we may have recorded it. I don't know. It, it may have been a conversation. I don't know. But oh it, my wa- God. Oh it my was, God. it was the most, we probably spent two or three hours going in circles before we finally went, you know what? This doesn't work. We tried so hard to make it work, but it just didn't work. And, um, it, it but I will say, and I, I point this out to just validate your idea that sometimes an idea doesn't work, but I will say that is rare. Most of the time, we can we can work it out. We can figure it out. We can come up with a solution to get to figure out how to make something work. It's just in this con- in particular case. Um, no, that one we did on a podcast, and d- it demonstrated what a nightmare it would be to like replot world history. That no, that was a uh, that was the. Um, that one, the the world history replotting one, was the one with the psionic rift, and that is recorded. That is the little black dress psionic rift one. No, this was the one where we, it was some sort of time travel thing, where I don't remember the whole context of it, but it was a time travel. It was a plot, and it was a star Stargate Atlantis idea, and we kept coming back to. But why don't the ancients just fix it? If they're going to do, if they're going to go this far and do that, why don't they just fix it to begin with? And that kept coming up as a stumbling block because the ancients were a critical element in their willingness to to trigger the time travel but then the question kept coming up well why don't they just fix it why don't they just fix it and we kept coming up with these convoluted reasons why they weren't fixing it but in the end we finally go but yeah but why wouldn't they just fix it the basic premise is the ancients are assholes they can fix all these problems but they didn't but except in this case, I remember it was like the galaxy was destroyed. I think it was something about the Wraith. Yeah, Wraith, yeah, Wraith yeah. incursion and the Wraith were feeding on the entire, not only Pegasus, but their feet had fed fed through the, the Milky Way. And the ancients were like, oh, our bad. We should have, we should have done something about the, about the, um, so they actually engineered, our they actually, gone right, wrong. our experiment. So they actually engineered time travel to send like John and Rodney and all them back to fix it. But then we kept coming on the stumbling block. Well, if they're willing to go that far, like time travel, why wouldn't they just do this one thing that would just solve the problem? And we kept just not... send one of their own assholes back to the point where they don't invent the race. <laughs> right. And we just kept not being able to get past that stumbling block of, well, but why don't they just, but why don't they just, and it was like, we spent like three hours trying to get around, come up with a reason. And sometimes it just doesn't work. Um, But I will say that is rare. Most of the time when I like sit down, I'm like, okay, I got a problem, Kira. 
uh, usually we work, we can work it out. We figure out a workaround or we got to take this element out or this part didn't really work or um, whatever it is, we figure it out. But it does take sometimes deconstructing um, what you wrote or coming up with a different, and sometimes it makes a different plot entirely, like a different plot plot element. Um, I talked to an author once who... Um, now, guys, really, we did write, we did take it apart for several hours. Even if you let the race be invented, even if the ancients come back to Earth, if they invent time travel, then they can time travel at any point of their choosing to get rid of the race. Even if it's like the day the expedition arrives in Pegasus, they can just get rid of the race. Yeah. It, it started if to they become, invent time travel. Yeah, it just started to become absurd. So we, we, we kept coming across this logical flaw. Um, and the funny thing is, I had this issue with, not this exact issue, we eventually abandoned it. We just said, you know what, this idea, I think it was for me for a rough trade or something. Um, and we abandoned it and I moved on to something else. Um, mm. I think it was Fearless was the backup. Mm, I think so. I it think was like it was it, it may have been upwards of four hours, but we took it apart. And no matter how you took it apart, there came a point when it made no sense for the ancients not to take care of their own damn problem. Like why would they do all of this stuff to enable this time travel situation and then just refuse to help any further? It just it just felt disingenuous. So we eventually just said, you know, this isn't I, I you know, we called it quits, that this isn't gonna work. This doesn't work. It's 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 a flawed concept. And it's not. It's not typical for either of us to go that far down that path that we don't see the flawed concept for what for what it was. Um, usually, we kept trying to make it work, but in the end, there there's just no logical reason if they're going to invest all this time to interfere and violate their own policies that they wouldn't just outright interfere and destroy the fucking race at some point in the time period before they destroyed the universe. <laughs> right. It just it just was a bizarrely flawed idea. It's like that fucking time in the middle of a podcast when I recognized that I had a big giant gaping asshole plot hole in every single Sentinel Harry Potter fic I'd ever written at the time. Yeah, I hate it when that happens. Because newsflash, if there were Sentinels everywhere, Harry Potter didn't grow, didn't grow up in a goddamn cupboard. Right. <laughs> it just makes me furious to think about oh my god but it's unusual for either of us to run it be run into a situation i would say where we don't it takes us hours to see that an idea is not workable that is it is so atypical i could i think it's it's maybe happened twice in my whole life where i just don't see the we're problem just really stubborn <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're like, we're going to find a way to make this work. That is not... Maybe it was PMS. <laughs> Maybe. I'm willing to blame just about anything on PMS. Because um, seriously, all of us, like the entire mod squad for for Crossroads and Just Right, we are precariously close to the same cycle, if we cycle. Those of us who are still doing it, we, we are pretty close to doing it at the same time. <laughs> Yeah. Like within days of each other. We should probably just post okay, a calendar like, or something. It's like, be careful wait, these I'm days. Like, wait, have you, have you started your period? Because I haven't. <laughs> Are we late? <laughs> but yeah, we, we were really stubborn on this particular instance. But most of the time when I've had a plot 
problem. I've been able to work it out, you know, figure it out. So um, if, but I understand what you mean about sometimes you find a flaw. I, I gave this as an illustration just to say that I understand what you mean about sometimes you, you find that you've got a flaw after you've started writing that kind of is ruinous to your um, whole story idea. It's like, oh, that the world, and that's more the world building has usually has a big conflict in it. Then, then that there's a then the plot itself is unworkable. It's like usually there's some big, you know, weird hole or something. But I'm willing to shift my whole idea around to make something work if I want it. Yeah. But sometimes, like with that whole ancient thing, whenever you involve a being that's from a higher plane that has an insurmountable amount of power that they just don't use. For whatever reason. So they'll use it. It was the bending, using it to bend the bend space and time, but not willing using it to, I don't know. I think it was to, I don't remember what the small thing was that needed to be done that we just were like, well, why wouldn't they? Um, I have to go back and find my plot notes about that because it was just such a bizarre thing that we worked so hard to try to make that idea work. And we finally were like, can you, I can't believe how convoluted this is getting us trying to make this work. And it just doesn't. But so sometimes you just got to now the pretzel conversation. Yeah. I will say I don't, I, all I can say good about that, that situation was that I, we hadn't started, I hadn't started writing anything. I had a basic plot outline and I was having some stumbling blocks in my own head, figuring out some plot elements. And that's why I'd ask for Kira for help. At least I, it, I think, I mean, it, my, my memory about this is hazy. Um, yeah. So, I mean, for all I know, this actually was one of Kira's plots, but I think it was mine. And I think it was the story that I was trying to plot for, um, the time travel, I think. So, um, I just think it's not typical for either for either of us to run into that kind of situation, but I just brought it up to validate that it does happen. Um, I prefer, definitely prefer to not get into the writing process when I stumble on these kinds of issues that I feel I can validate what I wrote. But if you are in that situation, my best advice where you feel like you have, you just can't, you can't go forward with the idea that you've already written X amount on and you feel like you've got a just critical flaw in it that, inva you know, there's a, like a consistency issue that invalidates the concept or something like that, which, I mean, these things, I guess there's possible, I would say less common than people probably think, but I do think it's possible is get, get at somebody else's perspective. Do you have somebody you trust that you could ask to, to read it and say, you know, what do you, what do you think? Is there a way around this problem? Is there a way to fix this? Is there a solution? Get, get some, cause sometimes you're so wrapped up in what, you think the failing of the situation is that you don't see the obvious solution. And it could be the answer is there is no solution. And in which case, all you can do is just move on. But hopefully there's some stuff you can salvage in what you've written for something else. But definitely get somebody to give you that second that opinion. Change because of the other person or because you've given yourself some time and it's not the problem that you thought it was. Yeah. Sometimes um, in a mo in the moment, it can just seem insurmountable. And you're just like, oh, fuck all this. I just don't understand. But earlier in the podcast, I had a moment about um, the unspeakable plot that I... It's brand new. It's a brand new moment for me. And I realized something very 
integral about why I was stuck on the two different versions of it that's really changed my outlook on the project and what I want to do with it. And that's what, six years in the making? Uh, Unspeakable Plot was 2013. Um, I don't know no. when you started. Okay, the, so like I don't, I don't know when you. <laughs> I don't know when you started the rewrites, but I know when you wrote it because it was my first rough trade. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. So, but Jilly had a story that she thought was a problem. Mm-hmm. She thought it was a huge ass problem, and she got wrapped around the axle about it because she had the problem in her head, but it wasn't in the story yet. Remember? Yeah, that's um, react from that's my. Co- I assume that's what she means to come to Jesus thing. Mm-hmm. I had she had this whole idea about her pairing that she hadn't even written yet that she wrapped around the axle about. <laughs> yeah, to to the point that I put the story aside and labeled it something like the unworkable piece of shit or something like that. <laughs> I I was just so butthurt about how frustrated I was with this <laughs> And her story. future boulder. It wasn't even a current boulder. It was a future boulder that she hadn't really hinted at or alluded to in any fashion in the story that she'd written. Well, actually, that's that was the problem is I hadn't been hinting. I hadn't been able, because every time I hit a point where I should be building this romantic chemistry between these two people, I went, no, it doesn't fit. No, it doesn't fit. No, it doesn't fit. And so I would go, I'm going to stick with the plot at this point. And for staying, not just the plot, but staying in character for Tony, who was my my main character in that story. I'm going to stay in character for Tony, and and I'll deal with the romance side of it later. So then I finish, basically finish the first episode. And I went, oh my God, this is crap. Because there was no romantic chemistry (coughs) between the the two main people. Well, no, because... It, the ma- the pairing was never going to work. It was never going to work. But I had just convinced myself that it was going to work, even though I wasn't writing it because it didn't work. I mean, it was like I was making the right decisions as a writer. I was just doing all kinds of the wrong thing um, in my head. And so I just put it aside for several, at least two years, at least two years. And then I was looking at for something to put up for Evil, Evil Other Day. And then reading it, I'm like, well, this story is like the this first part is actually pretty much completed and I went oh this isn't as bad as I thought (laughs) this isn't an unworkable piece of shit and then I'll just change the pairing (laughs) Uh, that was it I can just change the pairing (coughs) tra la 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 and her future boulder disappeared and sometimes it can be like that it can be that it's just because in the moment you're so frustrated because it isn't doing what you want it to do, what you plan for it to do. Like that whole time she slapped me in the face, and I'm picking on her. I'm, I don't mean to. She slapped me in the face with some unresolved sexual tension that she had no intention of resolving because she didn't even think it was the pairing. I thought it was the pairing. It was not the pairing. Yeah, I, I was having a whole moment. I mean, there were scenes in that story where I was surprised someone didn't get pinned to a wall. Someone did get, get pinned. To, somebody did get pinned to a yeah. wall, but there was no, there was no fucking though. Right. It was unfortunate. It was an unfortunate series of events that didn't end in anybody getting laid. Kira felt caught. But sometimes, yeah. Sometimes you do that. She doesn't do that. But sometimes it just happens that you're planning one thing, but you're writing another, and it's difficult to recognize it in the moment, and you see it later. Or a second pair of eyes will see it for you. Which is why it's really good 
to have an alpha reader that you can trust with your work. And that can be hard to find. Someone who will be kind but honest with you. And the kindness is important. Yeah. And also someone who's not interested in inserting themselves into your work. Because that is the worst possible relationship you can have with somebody, a beta or an alpha, who tries to insert themselves into their wishes and desires into your work. It's like, I didn't write this for you. Um, and you don't need to put your stamp on it. Some people think that, that, they are, that they're there to put their stamp on your work. And that is not what that whole process is about. Um, I, um, I can understand. I can understand bad alpha experiences. And, you know, I've tried alphaing for, like, for people who write fandoms that like, I don't read in and stuff. And I will say that most of the time that goes very poorly for me because... Uh, the last time I tried to alpha for somebody who, outside of a fandom I read in, they really wrote to people who understood the fandom, um, which became a stumbling block because it was like I, it was like they were starting in the middle of action that I didn't understand. So to me, the story was flawed from the jump because it wasn't decipherable to somebody who didn't know the fandom, which doesn't necessarily mean it's a flaw, but it does limit you, sometimes the choices for who can alpha read is how much canon knowledge they need to have. Um, are you even aware of how enmeshed in canon you are? I had somebody tell me that they were writing, I, I was reading a sequel, Alpha reading a sequel to a prior story, but they told me it stood alone, that it, you know. I swear to God, the first scene was like picking up from the end of the, the prior story. It was referencing mm -hmm. events from the from the last scene of the prior story. It was almost practically picking up conversations from the last scene of the prior story. And it was just like, how in the world can you think? Like they cut their book in half? Yeah, it was like, this does not stand alone. And so, you know, I think sometimes it's one of those things where it can be very difficult both on both sides to get a good fit on the alpha read front. Um I would hope at this point that I'm pretty aware of when I'm writing something that does stand pretty independent of canon. Um, so that, you know, if I said, hey, I could use some help with something and I think that this stands independent of this canon that you don't know, would you mind have, giving it a read? That, you know, anybody who alpha reads for me um, would know if that was, tr you know, that I, that I hopefully would know what I was talking about. Maybe. When I wrote in The Mandalorian, I had two betas who had never watched the show and who one had kind of you know movie knowledge on star wars and one hadn't watched star wars in decades um i had an alpha reader that was neck deep in star wars and did you do my beta no lady holder and chris did my beta no I, yeah i was i you was were an alpha, alpha yeah i was an alpha reader for that story okay. so julie was alpha uh Dark Jedi Queen was an alpha. Lady Holder and Chris did my beta. And I purposefully wanted betas who had never watched The Mandalorian. Because I wanted my the, the, the story that I told for the Quan Bang to be readable to someone who'd never watched the show. And so that was important when I was putting that together for the Quan Bang. To have um, that perspective of like Dark Jedi Queen who's a huge Star Wars fan. Um seeing that work for what it is in the Star Wars universe, but to also have a story that could stand outside of the canon and be readable to people who hadn't watched the show, since it is on a streaming service you have to pay for. Um, and, and I knew I had a lot of readers 
who'd probably read it regardless of whether or not they'd ever watched Star Wars in their life. And that was true. <laughs> I had one reader email me. She says, I cannot believe you actually used a Wookiee translator to write that conversation. She said, I got curious. So I went and I found a Wookiee translator and put what you wrote into the translator and it translated directly into what you <laughs> Like, yeah, of course I did. <laughs> that's not nonsense. That's actual Wookiee. <laughs> I remember the day that you found the Wookiee translator. I got this, I got this uh, DM. I found a Wookiee translator. And we were putting stupid so shit in. Excited. I was putting stupid shit in that translator to see what it would come out as. Brad is a dumbass. Yeah. I found a Wookiee translator. I also downloaded a, a language primer for the Mandalorian people. Now I had I was involved I was involved Alpha from early on. So there's different phases of Alpha reading. So I was more involved through the process, and other Alphas were more involved more towards later reading. How does this flow for either the Star Wars canon, or how does this flow for somebody who isn't? So sometimes you got to know what you need your Alpha reader to do, um, but you still have to be able to trust them with your work um, and that is often the big stumbling block is finding somebody you trust uh, with with your work and to not be um, not be cruel uh, to not and to and to not do something with your work that you didn't okay them to do like show it to other people or you know last thing you want you've had since you you know you've done an alpha read so you sent somebody uh your story to alpha read for you and they come back and go well i asked a few other people and you're like well now wait a minute that's not what we agreed to i didn't say you could ask a few other people i asked you some people are really sloppy with personal boundaries but you do want a, an alpha who is uh Familiar with your style, familiar with your fandom, um, who's kind and generous and humble. Humble is really important to me because I don't want an, a, an alpha or a beta intruding on me and telling me what they want me to write. I wouldn't let a professional editor do that to me, to be perfectly frank. I've never had a professional editor try because that's not their job. Yeah, By I've, the time I've... it gets to like actual physical line edits, it's already been bought and paid for as is. Any changes the publisher would have wanted would have come from the buying editor. So by the time it gets to line edits, I've, I've that, never that job is done. I've never been as intrusive or seen a professional editor be as intrusive as I've seen some beta or alpha readers be in fandom. It's like shocking. It's almost like a form of entitlement of its own. Um, I'm allowed to do this. Um, you asked for my help and therefore I don't know. Um, it's going to get all weird over here is what it's going to be. I mean, when your alpha reader is asking for a co-author credit, you got a problem. Yeah. And yes, those <laughs> kinds of things really have happened. <coughs> and yeah, I've, I've, I've heard of that happening as well. That's a whole lot of fucking no. But I, sometimes, was that helpful? <laughs> I, I was I was gonna say one thing um, about. It. Oh God, you did. She had that request voice. I hope you told her to kiss your ass, their ass, whatever it, ass it was. I hope they got told to kiss ass. You can tell her to suck Kira's dick from the back. Because <laughs> that's apparently a thing now. Anyway, 
Um, one thing that I, this is going to sound kind of kooky, but I read one of the things, sometimes the minute I start verbalizing, like I'll get on the, on the phone with Kira. Um, and the minute I start verbalizing the problem, I understand what the problem is. It's like, oh, I'm lost, 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 lost. The minute I start verbalizing it, I'm suddenly no longer lost. Um, and there is a difference in the way our brains process once we start he hearing ourselves speak something. And so sometimes just the act of talking it out loud and getting it out of your head, even if you're just talking about it to yourself, I know it can feel kind of crazy, but you know, if you're not somebody who I routinely talk to myself, so it doesn't feel that kooky to me, but, um, I no talk to myself, sing to myself, tell myself stories. I find myself incredibly entertaining, but <laughs> if, if you can take that moment <coughs> to, um, to sit down and just talk through what you perceive the problem, pretend like you're talking to someone that you trust, um, and verbalize what it is. You might get the clarity just through the way your brain processes the words as they come out of your mouth hearing them. I don't know. It's just, a, it's just a thought because like I have definitely had that happen more than one time where the minute I start talking a problem through, I like, she doesn't even get a chance to offer a suggestion. I've already gone. Oh, I think the problem is this. And it's like, well, what are we doing on the phone? <laughs> <laughs> My headset's heavy. <laughs> It's actually not all that heavy. I had a different headset when we first started doing Discord, and um, but the one I have now is pretty light. It's actually lighter than the headphones I wear normally when I'm not, you know, on the mic. So, but um, yeah. So it it it's it's a difficult position when you. I would say that's probably the worst case scenario, is like catastrophic failure is what I would call that. You're already writing. You're however thought many thousands of words in when you realize your fundamental premise does not work. Now, you I would have to be really convinced of that. And like I said, it took me four hours of conversation to believe that my fundamental premise didn't work, or however long it took us to talk that out. Um, so it, it was lengthy. It was it was a long time, but we we just we just labored when over. You get and labored two over. stubborn people who plot, trying to make the same idea work. Yeah, it's a recipe for. A, long... a whole gallon of tea being drank. <laughs> yeah. And it went, and we went, and we were, we were determined we were going to find a solution, but there really wasn't one that just didn't, that, because when, when you have a plot, you need to be able to construct, take your plot and work it backward, right? Like, here's the thing I, we got to. Well, if we, if we work it backwards, it's sort of like cross checking, you know? I'm going to cross check this thing. Oh, that, that doesn't hold up. Well, why wouldn't they just do this simple thing instead? It just never held up. And I could never get past my own suspension of disbelief. And that became the critical failure. So when you're in that situation of that kind of catastrophic failure of an idea, that is, especially when you've already started writing, that is like the least optimal position to be in. How to recognize that earlier in the process? Um, I think you have to look at how look at how you got there every time that it's happened. Um and even if you don't have somebody that you trust to your work with, do you have somebody you at least trust to talk about your process with and about what what went wrong? Because that might help about where was the disconnect in your process to help so that it doesn't you don't wind up wasting that effort again. Because nobody likes writing that they have to feel like they have to throw away. 
even if I don't personally believe that any writing is ever wasted, and I don't believe that any writing is ever wasted. But we all have a junk file. Yeah. We all have the stuff that we would probably <coughs> prefer never see the light of day again. Um, so. But even that has value because there is lessons to be learned in your failures. But And that's the key thing is you've got to figure out how to learn the lesson and what was the lesson that you needed to learn from it. And if you haven't sorted out what that is yet, well, that's a completely different discussion. For instance, in my 20s, I recognized that it was inappropriate just to throw random bodies in my stories. <laughs> like dead bodies? Yeah. <laughs> my characters can't be fighting dead bodies all the time. <laughs> it's just not appropriate. Not even in the suspense. It, it got out of hand. <laughs> it did. It got out of hand. We might recommend some mind healing, Kara. Well, you know, it was it's a long time ago. I know. Almost 30 years. So, Are we feeling old yet? A little. Uh, just a wee bit. A little bit. Just a little bit. But yeah, finding finding an alpha partner who will respect you and your craft is not easy. But once you find them, you're gold. Yeah, so I mean, it, that's actually an important thing that you guys have realized with your betas is that you don't follow each other in the construction process. Your brains don't work the same way. That's a good thing to at least have realized. Um, at least you aren't beating your head against the wall trying to make something work that isn't working. I've had I've had tried to have alphas with people who just had a very different perception of what alpha reading was than what um, my perception was. Like I, I felt like I needed some, you know, help with, you know, where's my pace falling down, da, da da da, and they would come back with a, you know, here are all the loose ends you've got in your story. Well, that was specifically not what I asked, but okay, I wasn't done writing yet. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> finding somebody never that really them another email. Yeah. <laughs> <coughs> Finding somebody who understands right. your process and the way you work is really helpful. But, you know, sometimes people also don't want to hear what you have to say when you alpha read. I will say that because I alpha read for somebody um, on a, something where they wanted to know if the, if the, they basically had like the idea premise laid out and then like the first couple scenes written and they wanted an alpha take on the first couple scenes and the premise. And I basically asked a few questions and then came back that I felt like it didn't pass the suspension disbelief test that I didn't think the readers were going to be able to get past um, the fact that it just wasn't a believable scenario uh, and that nothing that I had read in their plot document because I did ask them questions about well how are you going to address the believability around blah 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 and they had no answer for that and they weren't planning to address it because they didn't see it as unbelievable I'm like okay um, and then you know they decided that ultimately they were, and they could have gone, there were, there was just a slight twist on the idea that would have solved the disbelief issue. It was just a tiny twist, but ultimately, and they, and they talked, we talked it through and they said that they felt like that was um, a good compromise. And then ultimately they wrote me and said that they were really just in love with their original idea and that that's the one they wanted to go with. Well, I mean, it's their story. They can do what they want, but uh, they posted the story with, the suspension of disbelief issue and then were surprised when they got a bunch of comments about the fact that about the suspension of disbelief issue 
Meanwhile, we're all sitting on Chris King's porch. <laughs> We'd like some tea, Chris. <laughs> right. I mean, all to us, we're just kind of going, okay. I mean, <clears throat> if I wrote something that flawed, I'd just stick a crack label on it and move on. <laughs> <coughs> because sometimes that's all it takes. If you've written something stupid, but you like it, just put crack on it. <laughs> just crack, romance, murder. <laughs> I would I would agree with, with with one little caveat. To some degree, calling something crack that you are not in any fashion in the approach of the writing, other than the disbelief issue, writing as crack can then feel like a bait and switch. So somebody who is coming to read the crack. Well, I'm writing something stupid and I know it's stupid. It's crack. Well, <laughs> but if someone thinks they're if someone thinks that they're coming to read crack and all they're getting is something that is fundamentally unbelievable, they're like, "Well, where's yeah. the but where's the crack?" If by crack like they would feel like I think they feel like their their favorite genre was being disrespected. <laughs> <laughs> Because there are some people that crack. Man on vacation. That crack is their favorite genre. I'm just that's right. I'm just on vacation. I didn't do nothing. This has nothing. On vacation. This has nothing to do with me. I don't if know why. You don't get that reference. You've not read Make a Wish in the Harry Potter fandom. If you read no other crack fic in your life, and you're a Harry Potter fan, go read Make a Wish. It is a masterclass in crack fic. Honestly, he's just a man on vacation. I don't know why there's Death Eaters in the pool. <laughs> not, th- not that he my actually. Favorite part, not that my he actually said that. The rocks fall. The rocks literally fall. <laughs> the rocks fell. And rocks fell. <laughs> and everybody under them died. Oh my God! It's it's amazing. It's called Make a Wish, and it's written by Rorschach's blot, I think. Yeah, Rorschach's blot. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. <laughs> but certainly crack. But meant to be. It's not it's it was absolutely one hundred percent written as crack and it's amazing. Oh yeah, it's really clear. And Lady from, just threw down a link for us. It's really clear from the jump that that story is is meant for to be a crack gasm. Somewhere between rocks falling and the pack of Vila <laughs> You just have to stop even taking yourself seriously. It's just, okay. Let's see where this goes. <laughs> You're like, yeah, sure, whatever. Sure, okay. <coughs> it's amazing, though. I highly recommend it. It is a master class in, 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 in crack. Absolutely. Any other questions? Okay. Oh, somebody's typing. Okay. Well, thank you guys for hanging out with us this evening. Um, we appreciate you. And all that jazz. And Thanksgiving's coming up. And if your turkey's still in the freezer, you probably need to take it out soon if you're in America. Or if you just want to have a turkey on Thursday and you haven't taken it out of the freezer yet, tomorrow's a good time to do it. <laughs> Indeed. It takes a long time for those bitches to thaw out. <laughs> have a good evening. Say good night, Jilly. Good night, everyone. Bye.